Hi there, welcome back, and uh, I wanted to listen to a Sean Ryan show about the CIA's project Stargate. Let's see what else. Uh, hey everybody, welcome back to the show. CIA Every is up once to. in a while, I will take a speculative interview where nobody really knows the truth on the subject matter, and when I do that, I always talk about that in the introduction. This interview, however, may be a little bit hard for some of you to believe, but I assure you, there is no speculation. In fact, I've provided a lot of the documentation you'll see presented in the actual episode. And for those of you that still don't believe, do your own research, look this stuff up yourself, and you'll find that it's very real. Remote viewing has been around for a very long time. The U.S. was a little bit late to the game on it is the Russians have been utilizing this stuff for several years before we did. I brought on the first remote viewer for the United States. This man is a legend. He called the hunt for the Red October submarine. Many of you have seen that movie. He called where the first International Space Station was going to crash into the Earth. He called a lot of things. We're going to cover all of them on this show. Ironically, I've heard that this man actually remote viewed his own death, which supposedly happens at age 78. <laughs> Coincidentally, this episode was recorded on his 78th birthday. Wow. And I addressed that and asked him this question in the episode you'll see <laughs> it's at the very end. Ladies and gentlemen, if you get anything out of these episodes, please like, comment, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Head over to Spotify or Apple Podcast. Leave us a review. That really, really helps the show. Just leave one word in the review. That helps us. And ladies and gents, without further ado, please welcome remote viewer number 001 for the United States. <laughs> Mr. Joe McBonagle. One last thing before we kick this off. There's a lot of talk <laughs> in this episode about the Monroe Institute, a institute that helps develop and hone in these type of abilities, which offers courses to regular, everyday people. A institute that helps develop... Last thing before we kick this off. There's a lot of talk in this episode about... The Monroe Institute. Monroe Institute. A institute that helps develop and hone in these type of abilities, which offers courses to regular, everyday people like myself. <laughs> plan on going? <laughs> Check out their that website. Fun. I wouldn't be surprised if I see you there. Love you all. Enjoy the show. You might ask why I would be concerned with bringing the history of the Bible to a more popular... Thanks for 345K, even Joe if it's McDonald, just law enforcement. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here, actually. I am very glad that you're here as well. I've been looking into you for right around a year now, and, wow. um, and uh, Sean Webb is introduced us a uh, yeah. mutual friend of us and uh you know credit to sean i i've been listening to you for about a year 
on and off. And then, uh, and then in the weeks leading up to the interview, I've, your voice has been in my head. I don't know if you're pulling tricks on me or not, but uh, it's been, it's been <laughs> no, in my head a lot. I can't and, do that. Doesn't work that way. And uh, well, Sean has been a a a very valuable resource. Oh, it's a, for he's me. a cool guy. I like him a lot. I really do. He's yeah. a neat guy. All right, Joe. So I want to give you an introduction, and I believe this may be the longest introduction I've ever done. <laughs> so bear with me here. Okay. Joe McMonagall, you spent over 12 years as an Army intelligence officer in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. You've survived three assassination attempts. Army intel performed a fake funeral on you. You survived over a decade in a job that has a 20-month life expectancy. After your field service, you were tapped for a highly classified black project connected with the development of the first remote viewing program for the United States Intelligence Service called yeah. Grill Flame, later renamed Stargate. You have provided time-sensitive and actionable intelligence for the CIA, the DIA, the NSA, the FBI, DEA, NRO, National Reconnaissance Office, NASA, U.S. Special Operations Units, Joint Chief of Staff, the National Security Council, and the White House among other agencies that we can't even bring up. Your esteemed service mm -hmm. in remote viewing for government earned you a Legion of Merit Award, one of the most prestigious awards in the U.S. Army Intelligence Officer, oh, a U.S. Army Intelligence Officer can be given. After your military retirement, you spent decades as remote viewing, as a remote viewing consultant for U.S. intelligence, saving dozens of lives, including those of some missing children. You have remote viewed everything from classified submarines to hostage situations and even Mars. You've performed numerous successful remote viewings on live television in Japan and the U.S. And you currently guest teach remote viewing at the Monroe Institute. Many call you a psychic spy, but you are remote viewer number 001 for the United States. I've actually covered Joe. this uh, an interview with this guy maybe a couple of them on Gaia, so uh, you can, <clears throat> if you dig this guy, you can uh, go check out my other one on him. I'm out of breath now. Welcome to the Sean Ryan Show. It is an Thank honor you. to have you here. So, I can't wait to get I, your life story. Uh, I just have to, what if you're still just alive? have to say one thing, that's the three assassination attempts. You could interpret one of them as an attempt, um, and that was when I was uh, uh, in uh, Austria eating dinner with my ex-wife and uh, close friend, and uh, got something in my drink that wiped me out. I had no heartbeat until he got me to a clinic, and... Uh, the hell was that? Surprise everybody by coming back to life. <laughs> wow. And uh, as a result, got smuggled out to a rest home in Munich where they wanted to know how badly my brain was damaged because I had no heartbeat for so long. So they assumed I had brain damage. That and the fact that I was talking about God's white light and you can't cease to exist <laughs> might have had something to do with it. Interesting. <laughs> So they let everybody think I was dead, and 
I think it was just a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, I met somebody in Lynchburg, Virginia, who came up with, he had a beard, he came up, he said, do you recognize me? And I said, no. He said, well, I work for you, the detachment, the boresight detachment, and we all thought you were dead all these years. <laughs> wow. And here you are giving a lecture in Lynchburg. <laughs> and so that, that kind of is a, you could interpret that as an assassination attempt. There's a couple other events that could be seen that way, but only from a certain perspective. I don't think they were assassination. Really? I think they were just plain accidents where I have mm -hmm. to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay. Well, that kind of thing. Well, we will get to that in your life story if you don't mind prompting no, me when it's appropriate. Fine. But, um, Joe, I want to I wanna go through your whole life. I would like to document, uh -oh. uh, this is your biography. I want okay. to document your entire life, starting at childhood all the <laughs> way up to now. But before we get into that, everybody oh. on the show gets a gift. <laughs> so, a little something for you and... I think it's so cute when they do this. Scooter on the way home. Giving gifts. Thank you. From us. Oh, very cool. <laughs> Thank you. Those are not poison, I promise. No, hey. <laughs> They're just gummy bears. Gummy bears. That's right. Yeah. But, That's uh, very great. Thank you. You're welcome. And something that I did forget to mention in the introduction is you've been married to your beautiful bride for 39 years. And, That's uh, correct. That is amazing. Yeah. And it's nice to see people with healthy relationships, alas, because you don't see that very often anymore. And well, so, congratulations. I started out rough. But I smoothed out at the end. <laughs> well, you did damn good. So, but, um, but yeah, let's, um, you know, like I said, I would like to, you know, you have a very extensive career. I know you spent a lot of time in Vietnam, Southeast Asia, and, and Army intelligence. But uh, I would actually like to start before then mm -hmm. in your childhood. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Miami, Florida in a, well, I, what would be termed, not loosely, but in reality, as a slum. Um, the house we lived in had bars on all the windows and doors, and we had these broomsticks in the corner for the uh, rats that would come out of the sewers and stuff. So they were like house cats, that wow. kind of thing. And uh, it, it was a bad area of town. It was uh, 79th Street, about Northwest 2nd Avenue, which was right next to, I think it was uh, Edison High School, if I'm not mistaken now. But mostly it was refugees from, uh, from Cuba, uh, a lot of poor, poor people, mm -hmm. white people, black people, Puerto Rican. Uh, a melting pot. A melting pot of very poor people and so there was a lot of uh, uh, rough gangs there and whatnot which I adamantly fought not being a member of and uh, I remember I would tell them it's okay to mess with me but don't mess with my sisters or my mother and uh, I was ready to back that up and they, they learned to they leave did. them alone and pick on me so what? I was one of the fastest kids in, on the block. 
What time frame is this? That's, uh, let's see, 19, uh, 1950s. 1950s? Yeah. I was born in 1946, so it would be about 1958 on, and uh, uh, I went to Catholic school, elementary school, which is about a mile and a half away. It's now the cathedral in Miami. Okay. Uh, but it, it's now in a very poor neighborhood. It wasn't then, but we had to walk out of the poor area to get to the, the church. It was a little wooden church called uh, St. Mary's on the little hilltop. And uh, now it's, you know, all encroached by big buildings and whatnot. And it's a cathedral, you know, all polished and pretty and everything. Yeah. Who were your parents? My parent. well, my mother was, uh, my father met my mother when she was wrapping Christmas presents for a department store in Miami. And my father quit school when he was uh, 14. He had polio, so he wore braces on his legs. And his father left his mother and him and his, uh, his other brother when he was 14. So he quit school to help bring money in to help his mother. And so he did everything from uh, caddying for golf players which were mostly hoods from New York that would come down to Miami uh, over the winter and play golf and gamble and that sort of thing. Uh, back then, you could only get to Miami by train. There was no road that got to Miami. Interesting. Uh, my grandmother came to Miami in a ox cart, actually along the shoreline. Are you kidding me? No, <laughs> oxen because they could pull these wagons through the water and the sand and whatnot. And uh, she had her house built right on the Miami River. And it was a perfectly square house, but she lived upstairs. And downstairs, you could pull these ropes, and the plywood siding would come up and make like a extension of a roof around the outside. And under there was a big horseshoe-shaped bar. And so she served local moonshine, and they had music, and they would dance under these... Uh, live oaks, and they had all these old statues and whatnot, and uh, people would show up and dug out canoes, because back then they hunted the bird feathers, uh, hunted birds with the feathers, perhaps, uh, over in Europe, that sort of thing, and so she serviced those people who were the people out of the swamp and whatnot. Interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting story, the background of my dad yeah um but he never had a really a formal education but he was a hell of a golfer he took his braces off by the way and threw them in the trash because nobody would give him a job when he wore them so he walked uh, his right leg was worse than his left leg so it was about three inches shorter uh, when the war started he tried to join the army he spent three weeks in the army and the DI walking along behind the, the soldier standing at, you know, at attention, saw his one leg up in the air. He asked him, do you always stay on your toes like that? And he said, only the right leg. It's a little shorter. <laughs> so they gave, him a dis they gave him an honorable discharge and threw him out. And all of his buddies were killed. 
in the war. So it really soured him on all that stuff. And he was upset by that, I think, his whole life. But he worked in a warehouse his whole life. And I don't know if people are familiar with survivors polio, but walking on the toes or the ball of your feet on one side on a concrete floor your whole life. You develop a callus that goes right to the bone. It's most, one of the most painful things you can endure. And he never said a word, ever, about it. But he drank a lot. When he would come home, he'd go through a six-pack or a ten-pack of beer every night. Yeah. And people really condemned him for it. Like all the relatives, you know, your dad's nothing but an alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. But he really loved his family, and he worked his whole life very hard to take care of us. Were you close with your parents? I was close with my dad, but not my mom. My mom was very controlling, and she usually got controlling when I wanted to do something, like leave after dark to go somewhere. And so she'd scream at me and yell at me, and I would just ignore her. And sometimes she'd stop me and slap me across the face and say, pay attention to me. And I just laugh or smile at her, and she'd keep slapping me and probably <laughs> give up, and I'd walk out the door and do what I wanted. But I learned in the, in the Army, actually, I was thinking about, I had an epiphany, like my seventh year in the Army, and I realized what she was actually doing was out of fear for her children. She wanted, she was trying to protect us in the areas we were growing up in. That was her way of doing it. And so I came home and I confronted her with that. And she said, yes, that's all she ever meant to do. And so we had this coming together. And uh, so we became very good friends and very close until her death, which was at a very young age. Oh. So she had a heart attack. Uh, had to take two buses to get to the hospital. They gave her a bottle of pills and sent her home, and she didn't last very long. Same thing happened with my twin sister. Really? So, yeah. So, so you're a, a twin. Real, a real gripe with hospitals that mm -hmm. just give people pills and send them home. No. Still right. doing it today. 70-something years later. Yeah. But uh, when did your sister pass? Uh, she passed, uh, I think it was around her, just before her 50th birthday. And uh, she lived in Ocala, Florida at the time. She was also schizophrenic. Oh, man. But she controlled, at the end, she was very well controlled with meds. Was, you know, living her life. And it was a good one at the end. But, um, and we were always close. She was, she said I was the only one she ever trusted because I never lied to her. I always told her the truth. She'd call me sometimes. I get a call at three in the morning in Germany. Um, standing on the side of the road, it's pouring down rain. I don't know what to do. There's nothing here. And I'd say, how did you get there? Well, I was on a bus, and I said, why'd you get off the bus? So little Abner was looking at me. Yeah, little Abner is a cartoon in the newspaper. And she said, no, he's not. 
he was driving the bus. So I had to get off. And I go, oh, geez, what do I do? So I'd say, stand on the edge of the road. And when somebody comes by, wave like crazy. And then I didn't hear from her for six months. The state trooper picked her up, took her to a hospital. Oh, where they stabilize her. And when she was stable, she'd call me on the phone and apologize. And but that's the kind of life she led. And wow. So I worried about her all the time. When did that start? It started at age 15. Oh, she got pregnant from a boyfriend or something. And my parents sent her up to Baltimore to live with another aunt who kept her there until she birthed the baby. And then he took the child away from her and gave it away or gave it away to adoption or something. And that was it. That's drove her over the edge, I think. And uh, she hated my mother until she died. He couldn't talk her into any other bullshit. Man. And uh, I had three other sisters, and my second oldest sister, who was seven years my junior, uh, She, when she was born, I climbed a tree in the backyard and said, I'm not coming down out of the tree until you take her back. <laughs> I was seven years old. <laughs> And my mother said, that's not going to happen. And so I, well, I'm not coming down out of the tree. She said, fine, stay in the tree. And she went inside, closed the door. And that night, the mosquitoes drove me out of the tree. So <laughs> I snuck in the house and noticed a little bassinet sitting on the kitchen table. And I snuck up on it and looked over the edge. And it was my new sister and and while i was staring at her she opened one eye you know and started screaming and i went ah you know <laughs> but it's like a bird you know she kind of anchored on me and everywhere i went she went everything i did she wanted to see what i was doing and uh in, in her early years at school i had to walk her to school which is okay as long as I didn't like have ownership. <laughs> yeah. But as soon as we left the house, she'd say, You got to hold my hand. And I'd say, I'm not going to hold your hand. She said, You got to hold my hand. I can't see. The sun's too bright. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to hold her hand all the way to school. And when people, people meet her now, they think she's my twin because we think alike, talk alike, and everything about her is the same as me almost and but my other two sisters uh, my next one in line was Beth Elizabeth and Fuck Beth gentle like, Fuck a, you, Beth. like a deer I remember her whole time as a child she would walk around in the rooms on her tiptoes I think she was my dad's favorite and she was trying to emulate him because he's walking on tiptoes on his right oh, foot. Oh, yeah. So she always walked on tiptoes. Interesting. And she was very quiet. She did, was an observer. She'd come into a room and just observe. And then my baby sister, Kathy, was the one that was a real terrorist. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, got it into, she got into it all the time at school. Okay, uh, what so. about the Project Stargate, man? 
actually. If you've been in a car accident, don't call an attorney. Use this AI app instead. That's Straight from there to Vietnam. That was my second tour. How was... Mm -hmm. How did you receive the information that you were going to Vietnam? I mean, I'm, I'm, oh, it, was, it was well under the war by this point if you had joined Oh, that AP. was a story in itself. I got sent from the island back to Homestead, Florida, at the big air base there. We had an Army unit, and the Army unit was working with the Navy uh, there. <clears throat> and so I became an instructor for the Navy teaching them how to work a piece of equipment that they never seen before. And it irritated them that an army guy could walk into their area at total clearance to be behind their black, you know, mm -hmm. law. Well, I did the best job I could. And I noticed every time the block allocation came out for Southeast Asia, my name was on it right at the top. It had a line through it with the colonel's initials. So after the third occasion, I went by to see the colonel, and I said, I'm here on a social visit. I said, I need to know why you keep lining me out and initialing it. He said, well... I've had long conversations with your ex-boss, and we've reached the scales for your going to officer candidate school. <laughs> and I said, no, sir, that's not going to happen. And he said, who talked you out of it? And I said, me. <laughs> so I'm not going. He said, why not? And I said, because I will go when I want to go, not when you want me to go. And I will earn it. I'm not going to have anybody grease anything for me. And I walked out. And the next block allocation came out. Red line and initials again. So I went back to see him and I said, I thought we had this discussion. <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, but Southeast Asia is not in your future. And I said, it should be. I'm due. Overdue. And I said, why are you doing this? And it turned out, and he's very open with me, his son died at age 18 from leukemia or something like that. And I looked almost identical to his dead <laughs> son. And he had taken, it, taken me on as somebody to protect. And I said, don't do this. I will not receive this well. Mm -hmm. The next block allocation. Southeast Asia. That's how I got to Vietnam. So you wanted to go? I wanted to go, yeah. That was in, that was part of being in the military for mm -hmm. me. That was like, that's where it all is. It's a war. That's where they send people in the army. Mm -hmm. You know, that and I felt, I felt I was well trained. I knew what I was doing. Why not? It didn't make any sense to me that somebody was keeping me out of it. Mm -hmm. it. It just, it angered me in a sense. Were there, were there a lot of people at that time that actually wanted to go to the war? Because no, no, no. Nowadays, we don't, we don't hear that. 
No, there was huge demonstrations starting to build mm -hmm. for resentment about it. Nobody wanted to be drafted. Nobody wanted to volunteer. It was a bad war. Nobody wanted to be in it. It was growing. This was, uh, let's see, 60, beginning of 67. And so, no, it was not a good thing. But I felt, I felt like it, it, it's denial. It's like stupid. You got it. If you're in the Army and you're a volunteer, that's what you do. You go where the war is. You go where the fight is. You go where you're needed. And so I went to Vietnam. And funny thing happened when I got to Vietnam and I walked in my first orderly room. I had these orders in a packet that said not to be diverted by anybody, no matter what their rank, uh, by order of some general somewhere. The first thing they tried to do was divert me. <laughs> divert me to a colonel who came in with a jeep and a five-ton and was looking for 25 warm bodies. And he had blood on him, and I said, I'm not going where he's going. Obviously, he's not very good at what he does. <laughs> so I, I, I just walked away from him and went to the tent of the guy who was running the repo demo and just walked into his tent, laid in his cot, and took a nap. <laughs> My orders said not to be diverted, so I took it seriously. Mm -hmm. So I finally got my orders to go up to uh, the 330th Radar Recon in Play Coop area, Central Islands. And so when I got up there and I walked in the orderly room, they said, oh, you're already in E6. And I said, well, yeah. He handed me another E6 stripe. I said, what's this? He said, well, that's the blood stripe we were going to give you when you walked in. <laughs> you know what a blood stripe is. What is it? That mm -hmm. Back then, it meant the guy you were replacing was killed. <laughs> oh, shit. So you got his rank to take over. And I said, I don't know anything about what he was doing. He said, well, nevertheless, you're in charge of it. <laughs> and so when I met the first guys I met, I said, I'm not in charge of you guys, you're in charge of me, because I've not been here before. So, until I'm comfortable, I'll do everybody else's job. But the black guy who's been here the longest, you're in charge. <laughs> so that's how I did it. And so, what was your, what was your mission? My mission in Vietnam was manyfold. One was predominantly um, running outstations, what we call outstations for direction pointing. We had some five or six HF high frequency direction pointing stations. And they were out of the way. They might have six, possibly upwards of eight men assigned to them, but they were huge bunkers in the center of an antenna field that would do direction pointing. And getting from the outside of the antenna field to the inside of one of those bunkers usually required somebody coming out and meeting you and saying, step where I step. <laughs> Be 
because it, there was no other defense. They had swing rack twin 50s on top of the bunker mm -hmm. and big searchlights and a lot of booby traps yeah. and a lot of mines and stuff. And generally speaking, the enemy usually left it alone, but when they decided they wanted to take one out, it was Katie bar the door, that kind of thing. A lot of support fire, which is predominantly what the bunker was for, because it was always danger close stuff. Um, but it, nevertheless, it, that's what I did, is I managed those things, those sites, and things like that. And we had a thing called an ANPRD-1 at the time. I don't know if you are familiar with that. I am not. An ARPRD-1 was a, basically a radio oh. with a rotational antenna on top that does pressure point in the HF area. It's, uh, at the time, it was the most modern stuff they had at the end of the Second World War. Okay. So that piece of equipment weighed 68 pounds. It was considered man-packable. Oh, man. So you could dismantle it and man-pack it. This so was back in the hard days. Problem was, it had batteries. The frickin' batteries weighed 60 pounds apiece. So it was like crazy. So the best we could do is we would hard-mount it in a Jeep. And the Jeep that I... I went to the, mess, the motor pool and selected a Jeep. And I told the, the motor pool sergeant, I said, you got any V8s laying around? <laughs> I had a V8 put in my Jeep. I had the, the windshield taken off. I had a cutter bar put up in the front, welded in the front. Two layers of sandbags laid in it. It was the fastest freaking Jeep on the planet. And, you know, this is something I never understood. You're in a combat area. You're in a heavily fortified combat area. So they dropped the speed limit to 25 miles an hour because of all the troops walking around. Bullshit. I'm not, I'm not going down at 25 miles an hour. IEDs are set at 25 miles an hour. I'd blow through there at 70, and they'd be going off, you know, half a mile behind me. If my driver happened to hit a piece of cardboard in the road, I usually beat him senseless with my helmet. It was like, no, no, 70 miles an hour is comfortable. And they, and they have these things where they stop everybody to form up a convoy where they can mount uh, heavy mortar teams and a truck in the front and a truck in the back. And, you know, all this protection for a convoy. And what do they do? They the bottom of the mountain pass, going up the other side, they hit the lead truck, the tail truck, blast the bridge out of condition, and then rake it as long as they can before oh. cover arrives. And covers not very days. in the mountains anyway. So no, we we come up for these convoys and I'd pull out my special pass as an intelligence guy. I'd say, move those barricades. We blow through there. I figure they're never going to open up on us with just a single Jeep. Yeah. They're waiting for that convoy. And so we'd be going down the road to, I don't know, to the 
coast, out of the mountains, out on K to the coast, and we'd, we'd go by areas where you could see them setting up their mortar emplacements and their heavy gun emplacements, their Russian heavy machine guns and stuff. Wow. We just blow through Is there. It a single jeep? Yeah, single jeep. We might draw some ground fire, but it couldn't hit us. Yeah. That kind of stuff. What kind of intelligence ops are you running? First off, if you haven't made money with AI yet, don't worry. AI is the biggest... Wanted to find the headquarters for most of these units, like the 144th, the 145th, North Vietnamese uh, Division, or whatever they call it. I can't remember now. Uh, usually the larger units, the headquarters units, we're looking for their prime headquarters. Okay. And if we could locate that by locating the antenna first, their prime broadcast antenna, then once we located that and we could go into the area and suss out where some of their main units were and then once we had built a schematic of how they were laid out we could call in you know okay uh, so you guys were and, kind of triangulating on yeah uh, on enemy enemy hqs right and then predominantly hqs uh Sometimes we got smaller units that were operating the area that were doing a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. They would bring us in on that. Boring. I remember one, and we took Put a lot of photographs sleep. too sometimes when we saw things that were obviously enemy Fuck. active things. Um, I'm not interested. Did you have an experience with some type of a medicine man over there? trying to think <laughs> I had an experience with a, a really bad doctor <laughs> oh wait a minute no I had an experience on the medicine man um actually, actually I didn't have that experience what? let me back up <laughs> I had a I had an event that happened when I was living in Nankai um I lived in a a hut that was off the ground in Nunkai. It was probably 500 years old, this hut. It was uh, 15, maybe 17 feet off the ground. You went up and down through a ladder, a center hole in the hut. And when you got up at night, you pulled the ladder up, shut the trap door, and put a pin through it. So that was security. Below you, uh, there was a walkway to the ladder. But inside that wired-in area under the hut is where you kept the pigs. Pigs are a great alarm. You wake a pig up in the middle of the night, they start going crazy. So they make great alarms. So everybody keeps pigs under their hut. And uh, so I slept on a pad that was on the floor. I had a little candle, usually lit. And I had a beam that went across my head, maybe this high above my head. So I sat up too quick. It hit the beam. But on this side of the beam, where my head would hit, were two pins, and I had a combat shotgun laying up there with uh, alternating solid slug triple X 
That was my go-to weapon if something happened in the middle of the night. And this one night, well, I had an open balcony. It had, you wanted a window, you just cut a window with a chainsaw. Mm. Um, told me about it. I was like, <sighs> oh my yeah, God, this is six is. hours long. When when what? was your, holy shit, when this was is your six first... hours long. <laughs> when did you get poisoned? Oh, man. Was that in this time frame? <sighs> no, that was, uh. Uh, let me think a minute. Could be generated. Skipping forward because it's putting me to sleep. It's military stuff. No. Can it be generated? Yeah, you could generate it, but only within limited circumstances in terms of targeting something. And this has everything. It's USDA organic. It's got chaga, cordyceps, lime. Topic before you were recruited. Before I was recruited, didn't have an opinion. Did you, did you, was I there any some, discussion? I had some very interesting events in my life, particularly in Vietnam, that were very meaningful to me, but for other reasons. I, I didn't understand them. But they happened. Mm -hmm. uh, an example would be I was at uh, a fire base, and I can't remember the name of it now, but it was in uh, they landed helicopters there, and it was a support fire base. And I was there at TDY. I was there maybe a month running my AM, uh, the NPRD once. Uh, on the Jeep, and I was asked to fulfill a role there if they came under attack. I was a senior staff sergeant, so they said, what we would like you to do is if we come under attack, since you're only here TDY, we want you to go to the bunker with the radios and help to coordinate whatever fire support we get. I said, fine, not a problem. So we came under attack one night, so I took off to the bunker. And just as I got to the bunker, I started down the steps into the bunker, and I took maybe the first two steps. I was in a hurry. And somebody yelled, freeze, really loud. So I stopped, and I looked to see who yelled it. And the whole bunker dissolved in front of me, just collapsed. It was hit with, I don't know how many different RPGs or something. Maybe a zapper got inside. I have no idea, but it just collapsed right in front of me. So it had been inside that bunker when it collapsed. But it wasn't. Um, that's the second time I've heard that. Huh? This is the second time I've heard that. Yeah, it, it was a voice out of somewhere, and it stopped me dead in my tracks. Otherwise, I would have been in there. Wow. Uh, the second time, uh, in our in our base camp, which is on a hill, uh, quite a distance from uh, the 4th Division, Armored Division, and Pleiku City Runway, and that sort of stuff, Special Forces Camp. We were on like half a hill with the combat engineers, 
the back side of our hill. We were on the other side. And our side faced this just vast openness of just nothing but scrub as far as you could see. And then it went into the foothills and into the dry border area. And uh, one of the things that we that we had there was, like I said, we were living in holes in the ground, which was perfectly all right with us. I mean, I was comfortable unless you took a direct hit, and even then it would maybe go into the mud and you'd get an upward detonation or something and nobody get hurt. Get your brains rattled maybe, but that was it. Well, the engineers came in and built us these big concrete pads with these wooden buildings and put 10 roofs on them. And our commander at the time said, I want everybody to move in there because we're going to bulldoze the holes. And I refused. I said, the guys in my tent are not moving, and neither am I. Those are not properly fortified. They're not protected against attack by mortar. Until you got a layer of sandbags on the roof, I'm not moving anybody in there. And I couldn't convince them why it would be dangerous. Because we had four of those buildings in a row. And everybody started moving in, and we refused. So we're out on a mission. When we came back, our hole was bulldozed over, and we were moved in there. So I told my guys, okay until they do something to revet the outside of the building and put something over the roof, I want you to sandbag your cots, because at least then you'll have something you can lay up against. Because if something comes through the roof, it's going to pre-detonate above the ground. We're going to get spalding off the concrete floor. It's going to just chew this place up. They ordered me to get all the sandbags out. And I refused to do that. When I wasn't there, the commander came in, gave everybody a direct order. They started taking the sandbags out. I came back that evening. I was really hot. I went and argued with him. Came back in, crashed, fell asleep. Middle of my night that night, we got hit with mortar. We got bracketed by two heavy mortars, and I mean they tore us up. We got all kinds of pre-detonations, lots of wounded. Uh, the guy in the private, I got a private room on the end of the barracks. So when I heard him going off, I just rolled off the cot and pulled everything in the room that wasn't attached to anything down on top of me. Everything I owned had holes in it. The guy in the room next to me never got out of his bed. He was hit in the head. It was just feathers everywhere from his pillow. Um, so I was inside having the guys re-sandbag their, the surviving guys re-sandbagging their cots when the, the boss came in again. And I just pulled my 45 out, jacked around in it, and laid it on the sandbags and kept stacking the sandbags. And the first sergeant said, well, maybe you ought to go outside with me, sir. We'll have a discussion about it out here. And he left, and I never saw him again. That was the second time. It, it was like I, I knew stuff was going to happen. But the thing that got to me was this kid. I can't even remember the state he was from, but he had a real southern accent, like from Kentucky or it might have been Tennessee even. I can't remember. 
but he, all he wanted to do was make me happy because I happened to be the the uh, sar the sergeant of the guard one night, and so I was in charge of all the bunkers and stuff. So the following morning, when the bunker guys had all been relieved, I told this kid, I said, go out and collect all the loose hand grenades, collect them up, put them in the back of the three-quarter ton truck. I, tell, I didn't tell him specifically how to do that, but I told him to do that. So he said, yes, sir, yes, sir, right away, and he ran out to do it. And I was talking to someone else, maybe 80 feet away from the bunkers, and the three-quarter was parked over near the, the side. And he was waving at me, and he was walking to the three-quarter ton truck carrying a gunny sack. And I had this picture in my mind of the open weaving in the gunny sack catching a pin. You know, just getting hung up on a pin. And start, I started yelling at him and doing this. And he started waving back. And he walked over a three-quarter and turned the gunny sack upside down and shook the grenades into the back of three-quarter duck trap. And it was a big, big flash. And he was gone. And I, I just saw that whole thing happening, like, 60 seconds before it did. Wow. So, I started paying attention to stuff. Uh, if I started, if I'd be sitting out on the ground, leaning against the, I don't know, the uh, sandbag wall or something, reading a book, and I get this funny feeling, I would get up and walk into the bunker. And we get hit with a mortar, couple mortar rounds, things like that. And guys started noticing that. So if I got up and went somewhere, they'd all get up and go with me. You know, like I went into a bunker, the bunker get really crowded with guys coming in, things like that. And so they said, well, you seem to know when something's going to happen. So you had articulated this. Yeah, thing. I, I was thinking that stuff anyway. So when I went and read this data, this is many years later, I'm doing it for the general. And I went back and told him that I thought there was a threat buried in it. I was serious because there were a couple documents in there. Is this the table with all this? Yeah, the table okay. with a mound of stuff on it. There was only maybe two or three documents in there that I read that I took very seriously because they were, one was from Russia, uh, two were from China, I think, and one may have been Czech or something. But it was research that they had been doing on combat vets where they would know things, and that resonated with me. And I thought, well, if they're researching that for possible use, as a collection tool or a, uh, a casually preventive tool of some kind, that, I mean, didn't hurt anybody. CIA's Project Stargate, we're talking about that. And then there is the submarine incident. Yeah. Can you go into detail about yeah. that, please? The, the, the target was... Um, at the time, my understanding was it was the largest building that existed 
in Russia, north of the, uh, or in the world, actually, north of the uh, Arctic Circle. It was a cold, what they call a coal harbor, uh, frigid harbor, harbor. They always had these big icebreakers sitting outside the harbor. Um, they were building something in this building, but it was not connected to the harbor, so they didn't believe it was a ship or anything. But there was a lot of material going in uh, off of railroad cars and stuff. There's a lot of heavy guards around it. They couldn't hire somebody to sneak a camera in and take one picture. They, they just didn't know what was happening inside this building. So, um, I and a, one of my best friends, he's dead now. He died during the project. Uh, his name was Hartley Trent. Hartley Trent and I worked at Target. And we both pretty much said the same thing, really. Um, that it was a very, very large summary, huge summary. I remember somebody asked me in one of my sessions, how big is it? He keeps saying big, huge. Well, how big is it? I said, well, it's about 33 feet or 33, 30 feet shy of the length of a Soviet aircraft carrier. And uh, probably 75, 70 feet wide. Really huge. I said, it's like two big half submarines being stuck together this way. And... Uh, there was a number of other things we said about it. I can't remember all the details now, but um, uh, the most important point was up until that point, all the Soviet submarines that carried ICBMs carried them straight up and down. So they had to stop the launch. That was like an 18-minute window where they were really vulnerable. This went away as a vulnerability because this new submarine, I said, had slanted tubes so they could launch on the move. And uh, there were some other things I can't remember now, but um, anyway, Hartley and I pretty much agreed on a lot of that. And But I have to tell you, he was targeted separately from me and I was targeted separately from him and we never spoke to each other about it because we were under orders during remote viewing to never discuss what we were targeting in any way, shape, or form, because they didn't want tainted information going across viewers. So I didn't know he was reporting what I was reporting, and vice versa. Um, we sent, sent the report to the National Security Council because that's where it was being targeted. The National Security Council had been targeting it for two years. Couldn't get any information on the building at all. So we sent a report in. Uh, it was carried in by an admiral by the name of Jake Stewart. I think his first name was Jake. I might be wrong there, but I do know his last name was Stewart because I have known him for some time. And he carried the report to the National Security Council, but then he brought it right back. And he said they they won't accept it. They said this is just total fantasy. Uh, I remember talking to him about it, and I asked him why did they say it was fantasy. And he said because they're already centered on...
being manufactured there and that uh, it's not possible because it's not connected to the harbor in any way. I said, well, tell them the fantasy is going to be launched in 112 days. It, it actually made me angry that they just resented the information. <laughs> so I said, take it back. Tell them the fantasy will be launched in 112 days. So Admiral Stewart, I guess, went by the NRO. I don't know if that's true or not, but somebody went by the NRO and had them order up a couple overheads at the harbor 114 days out. I don't know what happened at the National Security Council, but I do know they didn't care about our report. So they probably threw it on a shelf and ignored it. 114 days later, when they took pictures of the harbor, a channel was cut to the sea. The Typhoon-class submarine TK089, first ever built prototype, was parked in the harbor, tied up to a Soviet aircraft carrier. I think they were using the aircraft carrier to blind anybody sailing by the port so they couldn't see, or anybody who was looking into the harbor. And it was about 30 to 33 feet shy of the length of a Soviet aircraft carrier. Wow. It was a monster. Now, what I found out later, and nobody knew, is they, they built eight more of them. And no one ever saw or heard of them. So, where were they built? And how did they launch those that nobody knew about? I, when I was in Russia with Ed May, and after Perestroika and the wall came down and all of that, I, uh, I met the... Uh, chief of the Red Army, or whatever they call him, and he had me, he wanted me to sign a book that I written where I talked about the submarine, because when they declassified everything, CIA declassified everything I talked about in one of my books, and he thought it was disinformation for six years, that's what he told me, and I asked him why, and he said, because it was in your book, and I didn't know about any submarine. <laughs> And so I said, and why do you want me to sign the book? And he said, because I just found out it was real. <laughs> so I said, so I don't get this. How do you know it wasn't this information? And he said, he did this. He looked around and he leaned forward and he said, I know because our spy in your DIA told me it was real. I went, oh, jeez, what do I do now? <laughs> so he said, I said, would you give me the initials? He said, oh, no, 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 I couldn't do that. They'd bury me under the front steps of the FSB. So I said, it's okay, I'll wait you go to sleep tonight. Get it from your head. <laughs> That's all I could think of to say. <laughs> and he ran out of the room. They came back in and grabbed this book, which I had signed. <laughs> took off with it. And, and then the, the general that I was... Uh, that Ed and I were talking to said, you got to stop scaring my generals, Joe. <laughs> you just gotta stop doing that. <laughs> I said, okay, I won't do it anymore. <laughs> wow. What? So when you're tasked to do these things, how do they approach? Well, I, they just tell me, uh, Joe, you're up. And I go in a room, which they're taping and monitoring everything. And I sit down with a monitor 
throws an envelope on the table, neither he or she nor I know what's in the envelope. In fact, nobody knows what's in the envelope except the tasker who talked to one person, which is my boss. I was listening to the very kind of long, lengthy six hours interview of Sean Ryan show Joe McMoneagle. Monagle. But I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit because, uh, you know, it's the very too long. beginning, we didn't, ha we didn't have a language of detail where we could interact together and speak in great detail with one another about some subject or when we were going into a valley to hunt, we maybe that dog will our, hunt. Our, uh, our guide, our uh, witch doctor, our, you know, leader, whoever, who was probably the most psychic person in the entire group who said, hunt on the south section of that valley. And we would hunt there and find plenty of game, where if we hunted anywhere else, there wouldn't be. Or if we said, okay, we're going back to our old hunting grounds. There's three caves there. Which one should we meet at? Meet on the westernmost one. Don't meet on the other two, because cave bears are living there. If they come back and find us there, they will kill us all. So it's a survival mechanism. People understood what their minds were telling them about their environment, their environment and everything. They had no other way of judging it. So that makes a lot of sense. Where, yeah. where did we become this inefficient? Yeah, where did we steer term? off of that? Because well, with that, there's no... There's no need for language. Right, there's no need for a language. And why? Because we lived in very small family units. The, the biggest tribe of people was probably nine, ten people, all birthed out of the same families. And so we were all intimately related to one another, fighting for survival. And so we could actually read one another's minds or the very thoughts that others were thinking in our group. Why did that go away? Well, because small groups started banding together because there's strength in numbers. And when you have strength in numbers, it, it trumps small units. Strength in numbers, however, opens a flaw in the reading of minds because now you're reading the mind of this guy who's got this woman as his primary mate and they're not part of your original group and you're now reading her mind and he's reading your mind and you're the one who winds up with a spear in the back so that doesn't work so I think over time, not, not right away, but over thousands of years, what happened is we found ways for our development to change that capability from a yes, everyday kind of capability to one that was less invasive. So probably somewhere in the forebrain or the colosum or something, we started building a 
filter there that would prevent it, prevent this currents from happening. And it, it's not a perfect filter. Stuff still gets through, but it's just the outrageous screaming survival type stuff that gets through there now. You only see it, you see it in combat. You see it with policemen in dangerous situations. You see it with surgeons in surgical suites where something happens and they don't have time to pick the phone up, talk to their buddy, go and look at a medical dictionary or find out something special that's going to help them save a life. No, it's like right then, right there, you got two seconds to make a decision. They go here for it. They get it from everybody in the room, and they act on it. And I, I think that's the way things work now. It's an overriding need. It's a, it's interesting you said this because I, I mean, me and you just met this morning at breakfast, mm -hmm. and I had a similar conversation. I can't remember who it was, but they were saying you already. They. It was another. It was an. It was another operator, uh, and we were having a discussion. I can't remember what it was about, but he was talking about. We we got on this subject, and he said that he was saying everybody. He believes everybody has. This type of ability, and Absolutely. he related it back to. He was like, remember, you know, remember in Iraq, Afghanistan, when we were clearing rooms together. Yeah, and he's like, and you immediately, you can pick up on the energy of who's in that room, and and yeah, and when I think of it like that, you know, I I just, I mean, everything happens so fast. Yeah. You but know, that but light shoulder tap by somebody behind you would slow you down, maybe just enough mm -hmm. that you don't round the next corner. Yeah, so fast you might glance back, you know, go like this or something. You just you like feel each other. You're also, but we would also, I mean, we, we just, we would call it reading the room. And so yeah. it would be, you know, women, children, yeah, men, bad guys, good guys. And, and, and that is what you go off of. You go off your gut instinct, intuition, whatever you want to call it. The, the only time I saw that was at the Tet Offensive when we had to clear Pleiku City. I saw some of that then where... It's gut-wrenching to kick doors in. You know, when you're going through a town or a city or a village or something, it's really, there's times when you don't have any problem kicking a door in and then ascertaining who's inside. There's other times when you just don't want to kick that door, you know? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, no, I'd, I'd rather, like, flashbang it first, mm -hmm. then kick the door in. Mm -hmm. and it's an intuitive knowing that I need to do this. So do you, does everybody have, can, can everybody access this or is it, is it a, is it a gift that only certain? No, I think everybody can access it when they're in a situation where they're, where they're at great risk. I think that's when it comes to bear because they're open to it. Could everybody learn it? I think to a certain degree, yeah. And in fact, 
that there's some evidence of that. There's a guy named uh, Han. He wrote a book book on this, by the way. I can't remember his first name. Was his name? His last name I remember being Hand, just like your Han. And he taught a platoon of Marines before they went to Vietnam. Taught a uh, team of Marines, a uh, platoon actually, how to sense their way through a inspection of a hut or a village hut. He he taught them in a a mock village on booby traps, what to look for, how to smell them out, how to feel about a room, how to suss it out, that sort of thing. And a lot of it had to do with how they felt when they just put their hand on something. And they then followed that platoon of Marines in Vietnam for 14 months. And their incidents from wounds from booby traps, wounds and death from booby traps, was 45% lower than any other protein in the Marines. Wow. Did they continue that training? No. We, of course not. We found that if you wire these two, the index finger and this finger, just have a wire coming off these two fingers, going to a computer, and a person's wearing a head, pair of headsets, let's say, and they're listening to white noise, you know, just that hiss. And they're comfortably listening to the white noise. And suddenly there's a, uh, a bang in that white noise. It startles them. What happens on the recording for those two wires is what you get is a huge spike and then a quick die-off. It's their emotional response to that bang. One and a half seconds out in front of that, there's a little bump that occurs. That little bump occurs every time a startling reaction is going to occur. So he came up with the idea, you take four guys in a Jeep or a five-ton or a three-quarter or whatever. You take three or four guys, you wire them together, you run them through an averaging box into a computer and the computer monitors looking for that little bump and when it sees one of those little bumps it lights up three red leds in the leading edge of the helmet and the guy driving the truck or whatever who's operating the vehicle is wearing that helmet and when those light up he stomps the brake immediately the ied will go off in front of him whoa at a broadside Whoa. We set up Corps of Engineers. We got a mock village, Corps of Engineers to set the IEDs, unbeknownst to anybody. We wanted volunteers from the Marine Corps of the Army to test this. And they all agreed, up to the point of actually doing it, and everybody backed up. Why? Why I don't know. You can demonstrate it. In a lab, you can demonstrate it. Why wouldn't you test that? I have no idea. Neither no do idea. I. It's, it's craziness. It is. It is. But, but all human beings have these capacities. It's, it's built into us. I mean, 
It's a survival mechanism. It's ancient. It goes back to the beginnings of the human. It's the reason we covet the earth. We're, we're, we're in charge of the entire world now. There are no cave bears anymore, no saber-toothed tigers. The predators of humans are all gone. And we don't have long nails. We don't have extra fur. And we certainly don't have the savagery of a saber-toothed tiger. Boy, why aren't we gone? They are. All the predators of humans are gone from the beginning of man to now. Except man itself. Except man, is, man himself. And guess who the greater predation is coming from on man is man himself. So, can you remote view through time? Yes, not a problem. You, you can go back in time, you can go forward in time. And, and there's, there's some proof that no human being operates in the moment, ever. We're affected by our past, we're affected by our future. We know that to be true. We just don't know what the aperture is. We do know going into the past is way easier than going into the future. And the reason why is you go into the past, all the concepts that support action in the past, you're familiar with. Like, you light a stick of dynamite, it's going to blow up. And you know that, because that concept's real. So you go into the past and you see a booby trap with dynamite. It's understandable. You go into the future just, sometimes just hours, maybe a week or two weeks or a couple months. Things happen for which no extent, there's no existing concept that supports it. An example would be, let's say we live in 1970 and we target a lab, a specific room in Sylvania Labs in 1975, where they built the first pump laser, where they got it up to enough enough range to get punch a hole through four inches of stainless steel, target that 1970, and tell me how they did it. You can't. All you can do is say, there's a beam of light going through four inches of stainless steel. Mm -hmm. How did they do that? Beats the hell out of me. It's like somebody sent me once. I got targeted on a on an accelerator, and I tried to sketch it. You ever have you ever been inside a accelerator room? <laughs> Not to my knowledge. You couldn't. You couldn't <laughs> photograph it. Never mind sketch it. <laughs> it's like, and I told a guy. I said, I'm trying to draw this thing for two hours and I finally said I finally said oh to hell with this it's an accelerator <laughs> you know way I can draw the goddamn thing I mean excuse me but I mean would it be would it be possible to manipulate the past or the future manipulate what again would it be possible to manipulate time some things that have happened in the past or things that are going to happen in the future. Yeah, I suppose you could if you had enough advanced warning on something. 
you could be looking for it to the point that you could use it. Well, I mean, I guess you actually have already answered my question. If with the lights, you know, in the helmet, and yeah, stopping yeah. for an ID, that would yeah. be effectively manipulating the future. The things we don't know is, do does that become a permanent thing, or do people learn their way out of it? In other words, it, that's all fine and good. It works perfectly for, let's say, three months. And it works so well, they don't know what an ID is. And so it slowly dissolves that little bump away. And the next IED gets them all. Gotcha. And now you're back to, you know. Gotcha. I mean, you, I have a lot more of your remote viewings that I'd like to discuss. But another question that pops into my head is how, how do you keep yourself from exhaustion? Meaning, I could see somebody like you becoming somebody's favorite new toy. Yeah. I want to know this. I want to know that. I want to know this. I need you to do this. You know, and so how how do you... Did that, that had to have happened with all the egos in D.C. and, and the, within it the intelligence agencies. The first occasion, and it's the, one of the primary reasons why I retired from the Army, from mid-1982 until September 1st of 84, I was the only viewer. There were no other viewers. They brought in new people, but they were self-selected. These were people who said to the general when he asked, and that was a different general now, General Bert Stubblebein. They, whenever he asked, uh, someone, what do you think about this? They said, oh, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> okay. And, and he bought it and brought him back to the headquarters. But then they had to be trained to be psychic. And the training everybody bought was the training devised by the guy named Ingo Swan, who worked for Stanford Research Institute. He came up with a training system that was never approved by anybody. <laughs> Everybody thinks it was approved by Hal Putoff. It never was approved by Hal Putoff. Hal Putoff allowed him to do that because he needed the training system to maintain the project research. And so Ingo Swan became the trainer of the Army people that were recruited by self-selection. The problem with that is... There's so much wrong with that. You now have people, like I said, anybody can remote view. I, I teach people. I've had one person in 16 different programs, or possibly more, I don't know how many I've done now, who, one person who said they couldn't remote view from the six days of training I gave them. At the end of the training, I always say to people, everybody who is totally convinced that they remote viewed during this six and a half days or six days, raise your hand. Everybody raised their hand. And I always, I always preface that by saying, doesn't have to be great remote viewing. I'm just talking that you know for a fact that you gave some item of detail about a target that you did not have a clue about before. 
impact detail turned out to be correct, that would be what you call remote viewing. They all raise their hand, except for one person. That was a a reporter who was collecting data to <laughs> write a report on. Uh, so I know everybody can remote view to some degree. The problem is afterwards they don't. Nobody wants to do the practice. Nobody wants to beat themselves against the wall for the next three years to be really good at it. No, that's when they start looking for the, okay, what's the easy part? Mm -hmm. When do I get the pill that I take? Oh. Yeah. And I'm a master remote viewer. Would you say that about bowling? If somebody taught you how to bowl? <laughs> that's my question yeah. to them. They go, why would I do that? Bowling's fun. Well, <laughs> it's the same thing. Um, How clear, I mean, what state of mind are you in when you are, what is your, do you have a, do you prepare for, 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 for a viewing? That's a, that's a great question. That I have what I call a cool down period. That's where I have to get all the, crap out of my head. I want to be as clear-headed as I can be when I start doing a problem. If I can't get all the crap out of my head, it just gets in the way. Or I can't control my ego, it gets in the way. I, I want to get all those things out of the way so when I do a remote viewing, uh, I have what I call the cool-down period. It's where I, you know, just slow everything down get as much out of my head as I can before I do a remote viewing. How long does that take you? Uh, it was getting upwards of an hour and a half. That's it? But, well, that's long enough when you got a oh. deputy director hanging out waiting for his answer. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they don't wait an hour and a half, I'll tell you that right yeah. now. <laughs> they like doing it right now. I, I mean, I just, I feel like it would take me a month to clear my head. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I had a month to clear mine. Me too. <laughs> well, well I, I started going to the Monroe Institute many years ago, okay? The Monroe Institute's probably the most important place I've found in my life because I learned, I started going there when I had this problem. And clearing your head? Clearing my head. And when it got to be an hour and a half, an hour and 35 minutes, I started getting a lot of difficulties from my boss in the remote viewing place yeah, for me. He said, go find a way to clear your head better, yeah. faster. So I said, yeah, okay. The Institute, the Monroe Institute, taught me very quickly how to use their technology to become calm, empty my mind, and be prepped for a remote viewing. I cut the hour and a half to literally three to five minutes. What kind of technology is this? They use sound there. Uh, they use different Binaural uh, beats. programs to uh, elicit that response, that calming response, that ability to see something other than the immediate moment. 
to see something other than <laughs> what you are. Their their whole their whole premise at the institute is to help human beings discover that they are a lot more than what's encased in this this physical body. That your spiritual nature, your whole presence on the planet, your job, everything about you is important and can be used for the betterment of human beings. And and that's I love the place for that. They, and they teach you how to reach out and go places you just would never choose to go in terms of development, in terms of belief, in terms of being open-minded, that sort of thing. Um, you, I think maybe I like it so much because as we discussed very early on about my angst with racism and all that there is none of that there at the institute you go and spend a week there with 22 20 other people and they become family and it doesn't matter where they're from who they are what they do in life how much money they have none of that matters it's like 22 human beings coming together gifted with a belief and an understanding that they're all equal and they all have a presence in the world they all have the power to change it and they all have open minds and they can all relate in some way I've supported the Institute for as long as I've been a remote viewer and I probably will to the day I die because they're that good. And it's not just one individual. It's it's everything it was created to be. And believe me, it's been a battle hanging on to that for them because enlarging it to a certain point would destroy that. Making it smaller to a certain point would destroy that. Bringing in too much ego would destroy that. Trainers have to be, have to earn their right to train there, or it would destroy that. Everything about it is in balance, or tries to be in balance. The fact that it has survived its developer, which is Robert Monroe, and my beautiful wife, and his wife, if it weren't for those two women, he never would have succeeded. Uh, he brought the the idea, he brought the, uh, the creativity to it, he did a lot of that stuff. He obviously designed the sounds that are used, the technologies, that sort of thing. But he was like a rough cop, it wouldn't have worked if it hadn't been for his wife, who was a beautiful, wonderful woman in her own right, who was very creative and a designer at heart and took care of the softer things to include softening him a little bit and my wife who i'm proud to say was the director actually was the first person who started it with him so she was the chief cook bottle washer 
letter writer, <laughs> drove around in a truck with a helper with the mattresses in the back, you know, that kind of thing. Wore a lot of hats. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, if it wasn't for the effort of those three people, it wouldn't be what it is today. So. Sounds like a fascinating place. I, would I go there and reduce my cool down from an hour and a half to three to five minutes. I'm not kidding you. The technology sticks. Wow. What Bob Monroe made a tape for me with his sounds, and I used it for quite a while. And, you know, tapes stretch after a while. Mm. They're no longer the same. And my tape started stretching. So I went into him one morning, and I said, I was there for one of those elongated weekends. I said, Bob, my tape stretched. It's no good anymore. So he took it out of my hands and threw it in the trash can and walked away. And I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Bob. I need another tape. <laughs> he said, no, you don't. He said, close your eyes and remember what it sounded like. And I did. And, you know, today you can wire me up and I can still do that. And you'll see the, the hemispheric synchronization occurring in my brain once you have that effect embedded in you it doesn't go away wow you can keep regenerating it just by closing your eyes you remember what it sounded like that's how i do my cool downs and some of my remote viewings that i got into i wouldn't have been able to do without it because the stuff i did in japan looking for missing people Typical remote viewing for that would be sometimes six to eight hours. Start at 8.30 or 9 in the morning and wouldn't stop straight through. All I did was drink ice water the whole time. Are you mentally and physically exhausted after a session? No more than you would be if you were intently working on something for six straight hours. Okay. Okay, same exhaustion. Somebody asked me once, can you do remote viewing when you have the flu? I don't know, how effective are you at your desk when you have the flu? Uh -huh. <laughs> it's the same thing. It, it, it's no more difficult, no less difficult than a normal job. Okay. Once you get used to it. Okay. You beat yourself up initially. <clears throat> do you think that you have, do you continue to, do you continue to, hone your skills and become better or you plateaued no i've never plateaued and i've never lost capability okay originally everybody thought somebody who was psychic would be very psychic to a peak and then it would slowly lose it there was uh this kind of slow failure rate I've been, I, well, I did it for 44 years. It took three attempts at retirement, but I finally stopped doing it. Uh, I think that was mainly because of my, my habituation of going, yes, I'll take care of that. <laughs> well, that finally went away in me because it was becoming more invasive and more tiring than not. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to let somebody else step up. Mm -hmm. The problem is nobody wants to work at it as hard. 
I, I won't lie to anybody. I've had to, to hammer at it for 44 years. It's not not magic. It doesn't happen. It, and then you're magically gifted. No, you, you have to hammer at it over and over and over all the time. And if you stop for like a month to clear your head, you got to go back to square two and start over. Okay. Because you lose that rhythm that's in that. Um, so, no, it's hard. I, I wouldn't lie to anybody. The problem is everybody wants a magic pill. They don't want to hammer away at it. Yeah. Now, I've met one or two really gifted people that could be world-class remote viewers. They don't want to spend the time on it. Well, actually, they can't. They have families. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to support their family. When I retired, of course, the Army paid for everything when I was doing it. When I retired from the Army, I started, well, I... There's that proverbial ego stepping in. My wife and I started a company called Intuitive Intelligence Applications. It's incorporated now 30-something years, 38 years or something, in Virginia. We started the company thinking that, that we could make a living doing remote viewing for people and companies and that sort of thing. And I remember when we started, the one thing we said to each other, well, we'll give it a year and see whether it's going to work or not. <laughs> yeah, 30 some years ago. <laughs> and it worked great. <laughs> and and, and the, the way it's worked is, you know, it's been up and down, up and down, up and down, but because I don't advertise anywhere, it's all word of mouth, one person to another. Most of my corporate stuff, which has been very supportive, I mean, very supportive, was, was because I guaranteed total anonymity to any of my customers. And the reason why is because most corporations I did work for had CEOs and CFOs that were publicly owned companies. And if they knew a psychic was advising their CEO or their CFO, bad things would happen. <laughs> so we just didn't tell anybody. I was like hired as the information manager or something. And there were a couple companies I worked for off and on for 15 or 20 years. And I have to tell you, I made a ton of money from them. And there are a couple individuals I worked very hard for, for a number of years. Uh, one, one guy wrote books about things like the Titanic and stuff like that. I did the remote viewing for him. It turned out my remote viewing was more accurate than written history because he went as far as going back to the records of the interviews with the people that were rescued and found that things I said in my reports were accurate. Things written about it by history and historians were wrong. Like there were two guys in the tower together 
when they hit the iceberg. Uh, one guy in the tower. The other guy was in the kitchen getting a tin of tea and didn't even know it was going to happen. And that's never been in history reports until my remote viewing. Now it's in history reports. Wow. Stuff like that. Wow. Um, I started out, uh, well, we digress too much there. Let's, let's, let's talk about the colonel that was kidnapped by an Italian Marxist group. Oh, General Dozier. Yeah, the rope brigada, the rope brigade kidnapped him. They took him in the, in the evening, I think it was about 6.30 in the evening. They just kicked his door in and went into his, his living room, or no, into his, uh, house. And they uh, duct taped his wife to a chair in the kitchen, uh, blindfolded her and everything, and they took him. And so she wasn't discovered till 7 a.m. the following morning by a maid that came in. And that's the first time they knew that he had been kidnapped. So they had no idea where they t where he they took him. They it was just like a 10-hour head start. And they were well known for going straight into a communist bloc country with their their hostage. They were also well known for collecting a ransom and then sending the hostage back in multiple boxes. So it, it was a pretty pretty harsh thing that they were looking forward to. So they really wanted to find him. And so it was all all hands on deck. And Again, Hartley Trent did a lion's share of that work. And what I did is I kept saying, and then they, they took him to a place called Padua. Well, Padua was an archaic name for Ravenna, which was the city he was kidnapped in. And so they started thinking, well, Joe keeps saying Padua, so maybe it's the archaic part of the city, the old part of the city. So they went to the old part of the city and they found what Harvey Trent and I both des described as a dead-end street. And it was exactly as he and I had sketched it. Adjacent to it was a big apartment building. So there's four entries to this apartment building. And the problem was, is he being held in the apartment building? And if we go into the apartment to look for him, we only have a finite amount of time once we kick the door in because they intend to kill him if they hear us coming, okay? So we tried to work all that out. So we're doing remote viewing, and, and DIA took our remote viewings and put them together and sent them over to the Italians. Well, the Italians put them with all the other psychic information they got. So I got like 900 psychics in Italy who all knew where he was. <laughs> and so they had this mess of psychics. So they took the top two psychics they knew of in Italy, and they went with the first one and went to a hotel and kicked the door in on a room and, <laughs> and caught one of their senior statesmen in bed with another guy. <laughs> Almost he was married and had three kids. That huge stain over the front page. So 
so they thought about the second psychic that they knew really well in Italy, and they followed that person and did what she said, and kicked another door in and caught a guy with three women who was also married and had kids. Was a polit political guy. Another big headline. <laughs> so he took all the psychic material and dumped it in the trash can. And no more psychics. DIA and our State Department went off. No, <laughs> you will use our stuff. Send it back over. My understanding is in the back seat of a jet with the guy carrying it in the briefcase, barfing all the way <laughs> with the refuelings and all this stuff. So he gets there and he said, you will use this stuff or <laughs> all my barfings are no good. And uh, he, he suggested they use it, so they used it. So now they got this quandary. They want to go into this building. Well, in the interim, they caught a cousin or a brother or something of one of the Red Brigade's members. And he said, yes, they have a safe room in one of those apartments. But he didn't know which staircase. He just knew it was in that apartment building. So the big problem was which entry, which entry. Well, Harley Trent came in one morning and he said, I've been working on this all night. I can't come up with anything. All I kept getting was the smell of roses. Well, it turned out there was a rose garden in front of one of the entries. My understanding is that's the sole reason they went in that entry. And they got the guy just before he pulled the trigger on the back of his head. Wow. Wow. And he was chained to a radiator inside a tent that had been erected inside the apartment. His eyes and his, he had uh, headsets taped over his ears. He was listening to acid rock the whole time. And his eyes had been blindfolded and he had a head cloth wrapped around him and taped. So he had no idea where he was. Couldn't hear anything. But the whole time he was thinking of his family and everything. Well, that's something else hardly Trent came up with. I didn't have a lot of that, but I had a lot of the descriptors of the tent and stuff like that. So, what we did when he was rescued is we brought him to our unit. We flew him back to the States and brought him to our unit and handed him all the reports, uh, shuffled them all together in a nice way and put them in a folder. And I think he spent like five or six hours going over it over and over and over and we asked him if he had any comments afterwards and he <laughs> said yeah he said there are a couple comments one is every thought I ever had about my family is dead accurate in this report you're you kidding me no he said secondly he said I can't vouch for anything that was going on around me because I didn't know but the fact that you, the Italian police came in and saved me, I gotta say, they knew somehow or another that I was being held and how I was being held. The 10, all the rest of that stuff is accurate. He said, I have one recommendation. You need to 
to start a school where important people and important jobs are taught how and what to think to affect their own rescues. I thought that was a brilliant statement. Me too. I have no idea where it went. But everything publicized about him says, I don't know anything about psychic function. Which is great. That was our cover. <laughs> but another guy who was a hostage uh, being held in Tehran, um, we monitored the hostages in Tehran for 14 months for their health and welfare and how they're being treated, that sort of thing. And uh, Hartley, again, he came in one morning and said, they're going to release a hostage. But I don't know his name. It has it rhymes in some way with the face guards and the deck of cards. Well, it turns out the guy's name was uh, Queen, and he was released right. because he had MS. And Hartley said his name rhymes with uh, face card in some way, and I think he has MS. That's what he said. Based on that report, they sent an entire team of doctors, experts in MS, to, uh, to Germany. Four days later, they released Queen. He had MS. In the meantime, the State Department said, this whole report reports bogus by your guy because none of our people who have MS would ever have been sent overseas. And he never made that claim ever in his lifetime. Well, it turned out he lied because he wanted to go overseas. <laughs> so it flared up. It was in remission when he went overseas. And when he was taken hostage, it flared up. So all of that turned out to be correct. The other thing that we, we saw spider webs in the trees of the courtyard. Spider webs turned out to be trip wires to the claymores mounted in the trees. Uh, we saw an entry-exit possibility through the underground septic systems. And it was through the fact that it was an opening to the septic systems that was square, which was unusual. It's the only place in the world with square manhole covers because they fall into the hole if you open and uh, everywhere else they're round um, and it goes on and on and on wow. they wanted to insert a guy in the compound that could do nighttime freaking ordering and the problem was they needed reporting capability that sort of thing well there was a boat in the car garage it had been demasted, it had an onboard radio, it had food on board, it had everything but the batteries on the radio. It had a whole bunch of cars in there with batteries. Whether they use that or not, I don't know. But I can tell you, I got called in once um, by someone in the Pentagon who wanted to know why we knew as much about a rescue attempt as the top 11 people designing the rescue attempt. He wanted to know who our source was. Hmm. 
And I said, it's psychic information. And he said, that was bullshit. <laughs> he wanted to know the source. <laughs> I wasn't going to walk out of his office. <laughs> and he put a cock 45 on the desk to prove it. Let's go with that. <laughs> I told him some things about his relationships <laughs> that he didn't want to hear. So I walked out of there. All my hair standing up <laughs> back of my neck. I mean, stupid stuff like that. Um, <laughs> we, we were getting indications for months. You know, uh, stolen vehicles, uh, automatic weapons being put together and hidden, uh, blockages being built out of concrete block in certain entryways. Guys in hotel rooms with telescopes. I mean, it was going on and on and on. And we didn't know what to do with it, so we started putting it in an addendum. That was a mistake. Wow. Damn. <laughs> now, here's the thing. If we're doing that, why wouldn't terrorist organizations be doing that? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. It's scary. Yeah. It scares the hell out of me. Bothers me a great deal. Joe, so all you need is that little window, that little mistake to capitalize on. <clears throat> what? After this, I believe, did, is this when you retired? After going two years without any relief at all as a viewer, I said, that's it, I'm done. The general, General Bert Stubblebine at the time, offered me anything I wanted. Said, you want to be a line officer, you want rank, you want money, you want, what is it you want? I can hire you back as a GS-15, da-da-da-da, just don't leave. <laughs> I said, no, I want to retire, that's what I want. And so I submitted my retirement papers. And I waited, waited, waited. Two months went by, I never saw him again. So I went into the to the office, the uh, place where I got the papers done up. Oh, you, Bert Silvermine came in like a month ago and tore him up, said you didn't want to retire. So I did all my retirement papers again and went to him first. <laughs> said, just sign right here, General, on the top. You get to be the first one. Oh, I really don't want to do that. Just sign right here, General. <laughs> so he signed him in a hand, carried him around, <laughs> and retired. What did you get the <laughs> Legion of Merit for? <laughs> I got it for two things. Uh, I was surprised by it, actually. I can send you a copy of it if you like to <laughs> Thank you. That's funny. I was really surprised by Psychic it because it came from the <laughs> office of the, the uh, Secretary of the Army. Nobody wrote it up that I'm aware of. Nobody uh, I wrote got it, it up. for all the time I spent overseas doing intel work for NSA, ASA, CIA, <laughs> you know, people like that. And the other half was for the remote viewing that I did. It turned out I was the only one that got a 
award for anything. Don Harley Trent should have got it. Same thing I got. Another guy, I, I'm not going to say his name here because his family I know really well. He uh, dropped dead in my office, 29 years old, married less than a year, had a baby on the way. He is another friend of mine. He came in one day and he said, I said, what, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in New York. I couldn't go. There's something wrong. And I said, he handed me his briefcase. I didn't ask him what was in it. I just put it under my desk. I said, let me get you some coffee. And I went in the back room. I heard the thump when he hit the floor. And I went in, and uh, he was laying on the floor. And I felt for a pulse, and it was thready. So I started giving him CPR. By then, I learned CPR. And uh, everybody came in and said, what's going on? What's going on? in the middle 
take them all, just make a big sandwich out of them and feed them to some big shark. Because they're not worth a damn. They're out for this in power. Uh -huh. They can be damaged by a psychic. They don't want us standing next to them. That's my... Do you miss those days? Yeah, I do. There's a lot I could have done. Instead, I wound up doing a lot for companies and people. And and I gotta say, finding when you find a live missing kid, that's like you can't beat that with thick. <laughs> when you find one that you fought with a detective over, or you fought for five hours with a sheriff to get you to to get him to do something with your material. And then they finally find the kid, and they use your material to do that. They've only been dead an hour. Oh you God. don't want to spend any time in the room with them after that. Because then my own desire is to just, like, terminate them. Uh -huh. You know, you're too <laughs> stupid to be a human being. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I just feel that way. It's, uh... It's enraging to a certain point, and I don't know where to go with it. It's like, yeah. How many children did you save? Do you know? I have no idea. Do you remember? Maybe one? a dozen. <laughs> what, is, uh, what is one that really stands out to you? One that really stands out? I think I think the kid that they called me about when I was in uh, I was in Las Vegas. I gave a paper at a MUFON group there. Gave the paper, ate a big dinner, went to bed early. I got a call at like two in the morning from the mountain that overlooks where I live now, down in the valley, which is all golf courses on the mountain. It's a ski resort. That's the mountain part of Blinkery. And I got a call from the female uh, police chief. They had a female police chief then. And she called me at 2 in the morning and said, we have a missing 5-year-old and I understand you help with this sort of thing. I went, yeah, okay. Um... I said, so what you want me to do is tell you where to go to find a kid. Yes. I said, okay. Do you know what a compass rose is? And she said, yeah. It, usually if you say, uh, if you say compass, they don't understand that. Drawing compass, compass, whatever. So I said, uh. I can't remember the degrees. I said, on the compass rose, you want to go to the last place you were seen. On the compass rose, you want to go to a certain degree. And you would take, uh, I think it was 125 or 129 steps. I can't remember now. A specific number of steps uh, in that direction. And when you get there, stop and just yell his name out. And he'll probably respond. It turns out 
the guy she sent to do that, the deputy, came back and said, there's no reason to do that. I can tell you right now, you're not going to find a kid that way. Hmm. And she said, why not? And he said, because I went to a class where I was taught by the FBI on this, and kids under age 10 never go uphill. Never, never go uphill. Never go uphill. So she called me back, woke me up the second time. This is like 20 minutes after I went back to sleep. And I said, yeah, what now? <laughs> she said, I was getting up. We're listening to Joe McMonagall, a psychic spy, and he's talking about... Uh... Sleeping. I'd like to... <clears throat> I'd like to talk about some of your other remote viewings. Now, one in particular I'd like to discuss is you were tasked with remote viewing Mars, from what I understand. And the yeah. time period, I believe, was 1 million B.C.? Yeah, 1 million B.C. Who was that directed by? Well, when it was tasked, I was sleeping in the industrial cube, the, the uh, sealed cube in Bob Monroe's uh, lab at the, the Monroe Institute. Because we had been working on going out of body and controlling it. And, he, and I was exhausted. So we've been working. This was Sunday, I think. And he woke me up, and I said, uh, yeah, I'm awake. What's going on? He said, well, I have some people here from the Department of, Department of the Army, and they have a target for you. And I said, okay. Um, what do you want me to do? He said, well, why me? I mean, he said, I have an envelope here. There's nothing written on it. It's in my pocket. Tell me something about it. So it started out with a really large pyramid. And I said, first thing, words out of my mouth was, this must be a new discovery. And he said, why do you say that? I said, because it's huge. It's bigger than the pyramid in Giza must be a new discovery somewhere. And then he said, uh, well, tell me something about it. That's what I want to know. And so I said, it's got really large rooms inside. It's kind of surprising because the way pyramids are built, that can't be done. You can't have large rooms inside because of the weight, the weight of the construction. So it must be some new form of construction. So are you sure this is not a new discovery? And he said, just tell me what I need to know. So I said, well, it appears to be some form of uh, uh, some form of protective protection of survivors of some cataclysm. And uh, they're in stasis. They're waiting for somebody to come. I said, but I, I think it's too late. I think they're all dead. And he said, why do you say that? And I said, because I feel like the messages I'm getting are like leftover mental images, things that they pass differently from normal or something. 
something like that. So he asked me some other questions. He moved me around in the target and asked me some other questions in there. And it turned out there were six specific targets that I was given in that particular case. And all six of them I described exactly what was standing there. And when I say that, I mean what was also pictured in negatives by JPL, except the Paulson Laboratory, California. And so I finally said, it's, it's like a special race of people or something. I'm getting humans just like we are, but I'm not so sure they're humans like we understand humans. Because they're way bigger. So what do you mean? I said they're like 10 feet tall. Really huge. But they're proportionately the same. They're very human-like. So I, I don't know what's going on here. I said, and the sun looks really weird. <laughs> and he said, I don't care about the sun. Tell me more what's on the ground. So he was being a pretty good monitor <laughs> at the time. And uh, so we, we basically finished the whole line of it. And I came out. And I said, what's going on? And I was introduced to these people. And the guy they had brought them was Fred Atwater, my old training officer. So this was... Uh, far as I was concerned, was an active mission because we were still doing remote viewing with the project. And uh, <clears throat> so I said, so where is this? Is this a new discovery or something? And he says, well, Bob's got the envelope. It has a target identified in it. And Bob, oh yeah, I got it right here. And he pulled it out of his shirt pocket and was opening it up as an envelope. Nothing written on it. <laughs> and so we opened up the envelope, and inside it said Mars, one million years BC. And I said, Wow. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to say? <laughs> but everything, everything that's actually on the ground, I described. And there is a, what I decided to do. Well, so next time I was in California, I was going to go by JPL and get copies of the negatives. Because somebody said, oh, it's all BS. And I said, no, I, th I think they're pictures, specific pictures for the different GPS locations. See, these were all GPSs that they read to me while I was in the box. The GPSs, in my mind, were for Earth. I never heard of GPSs for another planet. <laughs> it turns out every planet in our universe has got GPSs that match the Earth's because they're all spherical, as well as the moons and everything else. So, I, I didn't understand that to be off the Earth, I thought GPSs only worked on the Earth. So that's why I kept thinking it was a new discovery. But it, it turned out I went to JPL, and I walked up to the counter, and I had the actual card that had the GPSs written on it. 
six or seven GPS. I think there were seven, and I just didn't do the seventh because I was too tired. I had been, uh, I worked on it for maybe an hour and a half. And I was tired anyway from working all day. So I walked up to the test, and the guy said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I understand all the pictures taken in space belong to the American people. And he said, of course they do. It's taxed as paid for them. I said, okay, I'd like to see all the pictures for these GPSs. And he took one look at the card and said, oh, that's the old city on Mars. <laughs> and opened a drawer and pulled out a packet and handed it to me. And inside the packet are all the negatives. And I blew up the negatives, and guess what's in my book? Everything I described. The old fort, pyramids, uh, big impact crater with a road running through it. There's a, there's a road runs straight as an arrow. Said, you can see where the imp said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I understand all the pictures taken in space belong to the American people. And he said, of course they do. It's taxes paid for them. I said, okay, I'd like to see all the pictures for these GPSs. And he took one look at the card and he said, oh, that's the old city on Mars. <laughs> and opened a drawer and pulled out a packet and handed it to me. And inside the packet are all the negatives. And I blew up the negatives, and guess what's in my book? Everything I described. An old four. Pyramids. Uh, big impact crater with a road running through it. There's a there's a road runs straight as an arrow for 1,200 kilometers on Mars. They go right through the heart of a huge impact crater, and where the road comes through, you can see. Said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I understand all the pictures taken straight as an arrow for 1,200 kilometers on Mars. They go right to... Psychic spy saw and confirmed... what life was like a million years B.C. on Mars. Like Don Eagle.
that is pretty amazing. McMon Eagle, Joe McMon Eagle. To the heart of a cute McMonagle. CIA is Project Stargate. It's but that's what it's supposed to be. But this thing is like six hours, more a little more than six hours long. <laughs> Huge impact crater, and where the road comes through, you can see where the impact crater has been modified to let the road through one yeah. side, not the other. Here's here's the thing that made it real for me. outer edges of the impact crater, they know how tall the edges are of the impact crater because there's a half inch of shadow line around them. And they know the angle that the picture was taken and from where and the sun's position and all that. So they can tell you that the half inch of shadow line around the outside edge of the impact crater tells you it's 3,000 feet high, the walls of the impact crater. That's not really a super high wall on an impact crater, but what they don't tell you, and it's shown in the picture, is in the upper rim edge of the impact crater, there's a little triangular piece sticks out on the side of the impact crater that had to have been put there by somebody. It's, it's a construct. It sticks straight out at a perfect 90-degree angle. It goes like that. Is it part of the pyramid? No. It's part of the wall of the impact crater. So you got an edge up here, 3,000 feet up, and there's a triangular piece that sticks out and goes back in. And on top of that is a pyramid. It looks like a pyramid because you're looking straight down on top of it. The shadow from that pyramid that you're looking straight down on top of is two and a half inches out. Now, if the impact crater has a half inch shadow and it's 3,000 feet tall, how tall do you think that two and a half inch shadow is? It's up there. I, I said to the guy at JPL when he showed them to me, I looked at it. <laughs> I said, how tall do you figure this is? And he said, really tall. And I said, well, okay, how did it get there? It had to be put there after the impact crater hit. After that thing that made the impact crater had hit Mars. It couldn't have been put there after, I mean before, because yeah. the impact would have Destroying it away. It's this thing is literally tens of thousands of feet tall. What the hell is it? And he said, Well, a lot of people think it's a shard that kind of grew there. And I went, <laughs> I started laughing. It grew. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> they grew there. <laughs> but who built the support for it on the edge of the impact crater? Well, nobody knows about that. It's anybody's guess. So there's no doubt in my mind 
that what they're saying about this old city is true. Because that's true. I mean, why? I, I, it's like I ask questions about it, and they just look at you like you're stupid and say, well, we don't know. <laughs> why did you take pictures of that area of Mars? Uh, we don't know. How do you think that got well, We don't know. I mean, what is your thought process My after thought, that? I, I have to think the only aliens on our planet is us. <laughs> and I have good reason to say that. I think we're the aliens on this planet because we don't give one rat's butt about this planet. We take and take and take whatever we want from it. We don't give a damn what happens to the climate, the planet, or anything else. We have shit so badly in our nest that you see people dying left and right of more and more cancers, and we got to go, I wonder why that's happening. <laughs> it's stupidity. It's... God almighty. And, and, but everybody wants to think we're the master race. We are human beings. We own the world. The Bible says, take control. Sounds apolitical to me. Maybe just a hint. I mean, is that, uh, is that, is that, uh, disturbing to you at all? Very much so, yeah. Very much so. That everything on this planet, like human, cares about this planet. If a, if a uh, group of wolves, let's say wolves out of Alaska, if they run out of food and they can't hunt food anymore where they live, they kill off their young, they kill off their dead, they move to a place where they can find game that they can eat. Only the strong survives, but they do it to save their family unit. And they only kill and eat what they need to kill and eat. They don't do it out of savagery, and they don't do it because they're bad. They do it because they're in tune with the very world that they live in. They understand it. They operate within it. They do what's necessary to survive only. There is another animal on this planet that doesn't do the same thing, except for human beings. We, we just take what we want, and it doesn't matter what it does to the planet. And we just keep doing it over and over and over. And it's about power, money, influence in the governments of the planet and it's a predominant reason for war you know it's what keeps the coffers filling up it's part of how we can produce something that gives us lots of money back that we can enjoy and all it costs is a little war here a little war there and, and you know you can't not buy more airplanes or tanks because it takes 12 states now to make a tank. That's 125,000 jobs that would disappear overnight if we didn't buy any new tanks. So you have Model 2, Model 3, brand new kind, 
bigger gun, you know, faster tracks, whatever. You know, we just keep reinventing reasons for that stuff. Why, why can't we decide to put everything back to normal and stop all the foolishness and pay people to do that? That seems to be the more realistic way to live on a finite planet where we're not going to kill ourselves or, or ruin it or in some way destroy the very thing that supports us. I think we can't for what it does to the planet. And we just keep doing it. If a if a uh, group of wolves, let's say wolves out of Alaska, if they run out of food and they can't hunt food anymore where they live, they kill off their young, they kill off their dead, they move to a place where they can find game that they can eat. Only the strong survives, but they do it to save their family in it. And they only kill and eat what they need to kill and eat. They don't do it out of savagery, and they don't do it because they're bad. They do it because they're in tune with the very world that they live in. They understand it. They operate within it. They do what's necessary to survive only. During another animal on this planet, it doesn't do the same thing, except for human beings. We, we just take what we want, and it doesn't matter what it does to the planet. And we just keep doing it over and over and over. And it's about power, money, influence, in the governments of the planet, and it's a predominant reason for war. You know, it's what keeps the coffers filling up. It's part of how we can produce something that gives us lots of money back that we can enjoy. And all it costs is a little war here, a little war there. And, and you know you can't not buy mortar planes or tanks because it takes 12 states now to make a tank. That's 125,000 jobs that would disappear overnight if we didn't buy any new tanks. So you have Model 2, Model 3, brand new kind, bigger gun, you know, faster tracks, whatever. You know, we just keep... Reinventing reasons for that stuff. Why? Why can't we decide to put everything back to normal and stop all the foolishness and pay people to do that? That seems to be the more realistic way to live on a finite planet where we're not going to kill ourselves <laughs> or or ruin it or in some way destroy the very thing that supports us. I think we came here because of something that happened on Mars. Are we, were we the cause of it? Do you ever look more into previous viewings? Out of, just out of curiosity? Like, perhaps... No, I, I can't. You, I can't do that. I can't target myself because then I know what I'm working on. 
makes sense. Uh, there are things that I will work on where I know what it is I'm working on, but only because the answer is completely unknown to anyone. That that might be a, um, I don't know, uh, who who broke into the big museum in Boston and ripped off three of the finest pieces of artwork ever stolen, and where did they go, and who owns them now? I happen to think they're in private collections, and they go into these vaults and sit in front of them once in a while and go, oh, I own it, oh, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stolen for a reason, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but, I mean, it, Let's talk about Skimwalker Ranch. Did you have any affiliation with that? Yeah, uh, I was asked by uh, Big O to target Skimwalker Ranch when he owned it. I guess he owned it. I'm not sure if he owned it or... From my understanding, Robert Bigelow owned it previous to Brandon Fugel. Right. That's right. Uh, well, I, this is back when he owned it, and he asked me if I needed to go there, and I said, no, I don't need to go to Skinwalker Ranch. <laughs> he asked me what was going on there, and I said, I suspect... Military base underneath. There's something bizarre going on there that no one's faced before. <laughs> I think there's lots of places like that all over the planet. And... Uh, it's going to take an involved amount of study. You're going to have to spend a lot of time there and do a lot of things you might not want to do. <laughs> it's going to be expensive. And as soon as I said that, well, you know, can I hire you to come out and take care of that? No. Because <laughs> I'll never live in, <laughs> never live where you live. I'll put it that way. Um, you know, I think he's an interesting guy. I think he's got a lot of interest in different things that he's trying to accomplish, and I wish him all the luck in the world. But I don't need to be part of it. And I, I kind of blew it off a little bit. I did some remote viewing for him, but I didn't come up with anything significant. So I think he and I just decided to go our separate ways. Um, I think they're over excited and over exercising themselves over mm -hmm. this ranch <laughs> i think there's probably yeah, some bizarre stuff happening there but it has more to do with this location than it does anything else there might be i don't know huge electromagnetic deformity there in some way that affects machines and cows and people and, and whatever but I, I don't think it's anything UFO related or uh, mysteriously related to anything. Um, I, I've never really seen a really good mystery huh. other than maybe the guy in the incredible armor <laughs> in uh, Thailand. But uh, Well, the city on Mars seems to... <laughs> That's pretty, pretty, that's pretty far out there. 
Well, I have no reason to think it's not real. Well, I didn't mean that. No, no, I, I understand what you're that. saying. I understand very well what you're saying. This is something I'll be thinking about until I die. I guarantee it. My problem is, when you do remote viewing, I can't control what they target me against. Uh-huh. And as long as some people are in charge of that, they want to get involved in that and know that I'm a very good remote viewer, they usually try to generate that kind of stuff. I can usually tell when I'm being fished. So I try to give as honest an answer as I can in terms of what I'm sensing. But if I feel like I'm being used in some way, they don't get anything. Gotcha. You know, I just don't do anything. I just say, sorry, nothing's coming in. Have a nice day. Can you remote view into a different dimension? I suspect it's possible. The only reason I say that is because I've done some remote viewing on some things that were probably operational in other dimensions. Uh, trying to think of there's one project that was going on. Um, it had to do with uh, had to do with a certain kind of transmissions. I can't I can't think of it right now. It, it was a form of transmission that could not be seen or picked up on in this reality. It was like transmitting sideways through our time space, but it, it couldn't be sensed or picked up on. It had to be in sync with whatever was receiving it. I, I can't remember the details of that. But it had to do with some mysterious things that were happening around the ship. And I did some remote viewing on that. No, I, I can't think of a single target that I've been targeted on that was not doable. Could you describe, I mean, in a, what would your explanation of another dimension be? My explanation of another dimension would be a place you would go to turn right without anybody knowing you turn right. <laughs> That's another dimension. Another dimension could also be how we live our lives. Here, here's how I view human interaction. You're, uh, you and I are interacting in this room right now. Uh, we met each other formally the first time this morning. When we're all done here and I leave, never saw each other again, somebody could say to me, did you meet him? And I could say, yeah, I met him. And they could say, well, what do you think he's doing now? And I could say, I haven't got a clue. Mm -hmm. He's not in my world anymore. Your, your world is where you are and what you're doing. And that's real only while you're doing it in that place at that time. 
when you change places, you're with different people. So the best somebody you were with earlier can say is, I know what I think he goes and does, but I can't tell you if he actually does it. I mean, we make a lot of assumptions about what we all know about each other. You really can't make those assumptions because we don't know if reality operates that way or not. Um, two people who spend a lot of time together, like a husband and wife, share an almost known agreeable world that they operate within together because they have certain expectancies for what the other person's going to do and they always do it. Like they always come home or they always go to work. They always raise the money that feeds, puts food on the table. They always do certain things. So that's a kind of a shared reality. But if one of them disappears in the middle of that, you can't say that they're in the same world anymore. They could be in a completely different reality. The best I could ever say is that when I would meet you again, you could tell me what you did. And I could say, I believe you. But I can never know that to be true. The only thing I can actually know about the world I'm in is what I experience directly. So, having said that, it's nice to be able to be with people and say, I believe everything you tell me because you have walked in many parts of the same world I perceive that I've walked in. It doesn't mean what we've, that we've had exactly the same experiences or we've been in exactly the same place in time, but it does mean that we've had similar things happen in our worlds that we can identify them together and talk about them. There's no guarantee that we're not completely in different worlds, though. In other words, when I leave here, if I make a decision that takes me somewhere else, um, I'm, I'm actually stepping out of I'm actually stepping out of time-space into a different time-space. I'm finding it's very difficult to explain <laughs> how, how kind of my belief structure works. <laughs> We're doing a great job. I think that reality, we make a lot of assumptions about reality and people we know and people and things that happen and don't happen. And I think that that's, that's not a good thing. I think we need to be more, more understanding about the things that we can relate to one another that may be of value to us versus what we believe about someone else, which may or may not be true. In other words, I'm more interested in talk, sitting and talking with somebody and have them relate to me where they've been, what they did, that sort of thing. And it's not about saying, well, I understand that's true because history says that's true. No, I'm interested in what the person says was true because they did it. I want to believe them. Because they say they did it, 
might have been in a completely different world that stands alone from my world. No, there's a, there's an assumption that we're all on this planet, we're all sharing this planet, and there's no guarantee that's happening. In a construct of reality, you have to question whether or not people who go to the same place go to the same, same place. If you understand what I'm saying. Not really. Because there's no relation to two people going to the same place. Ideally, they might have experienced it completely differently. Or it may be in a different bubble than the one I'm in. In other words, I, I look at reality as a, just a huge room full of bubbles. And when I make a decision, I'm not going from this bubble to the tangent bubble. I'm going from this bubble to some other bubble somewhere else that's within the room of bubbles. When you and I are together, we're tangent Jeez, bubbles. But when we leave one another, we go to different bubbles in the same room full of bubbles. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. reality for me is a mass of bubbles of possibility where we all go different ways for different reasons. And we collect experiences that are somewhat similar maybe, but never the same. So it, it's hard for me. I can always say to somebody, I trust you, I believe you, I accept what you're telling me is true. And that's the best I can do. I can never say I know exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's, I see what you're, I mean, it's, it's like the argument, does a tree make a sound when it falls right. when nobody's around? Right. Y'all put me to sleep you with can't this talk. One way or the other. Uh, likewise, I, and I'm, I'm seriously picky about this. <laughs> sitting in a bar in New York. Seriously picky. <laughs> and they had Kelly, Kelly on TV, my life, butchering people in my life. And some guy at the other end of the bar says, if that was me, I'd never do that. And I had to get up off my bar stool and walk down to the end of the bar and look him dead in the eye and say, you don't have a clue what you would do or not do in the same circumstance. And I'd appreciate it if you didn't condemn the man without knowing. And I walked back down and sat on my stool. And the guy got up and walked out of the bar. It's like, that's truth. What he was saying, that ain't true. That's what he thinks. There's a huge difference between what you think and what you know to be true. And I can tell you, I've seen enough in this world to never want to condemn somebody for something they do when I wasn't standing there watching it. I would never do that. That's a damn good way to live. Yeah. Because we don't know what we would do in the same circumstances as other people. And it's the very reason why we shouldn't put people in jail for life. 
How long did it take you to arrive at this point? To this point? Uh-huh. A lot of mistakes. A lot of understanding in my own very uh, unlearned reality or my non-functioning understanding for how things work. And when you find that out, you find you're more tolerable to some extent, less tolerable than others. Um, it's, I think, the very reason why uh, I really wish I didn't know things about people through the media. Because it makes me form pretty hard rock feelings about some things that I shouldn't have. And uh, I could really digress into that easily. Yeah. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's the seed that's been planted. Yeah, that you didn't want. Yeah, right. I don't want to hear it. And and not only that, but it upsets the apple cart for me in some cases, where I would much rather be ignorant, mm -hmm. because then I'm less judgmental about it. When you're not ignorant, you can afford to be judgmental. And that's a wrong way to be, I think. Because it doesn't afford other people the ability to explain their cause, explain their reasons, or explain why they are the way they are. Now, there's some circumstances when I think that's necessary. When would that occur? Well, I think it's necessary when it come when you put someone in a position of authority over huge amounts of people you have to have some truth from that person if you can't get truth from them they don't be in that they shouldn't be in that position so they have to be answerable to some degree so no one can have just your authority over other people and not be challenged. They need to be challenged. And when in the challenging of them, they need to be able to step up and say, this is, this is my thinking, this is where I'm coming from, this is why I did what I did. And you need to listen to them. And if it makes sense, then that's fine. If it doesn't make sense, Maybe they're just not giving you the whole truth, or maybe you need more information, or whatever. But I think when people are in charge of other people with great authority, I think they have to be very careful about what they do. Otherwise, they need to be explaining it. Yeah, I'm with you. I'd like to go over another one of your feelings. Uh, this okay. is... This is my last-minute research uh, that I was doing last night uh, before breakfast this morning. And um, I'd like to talk about Mount Hayes, Alaska. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's it. Mount Hayes. 
I couldn't remember the name of the mountain. Um, again, I don't know what I'm remote viewing when I'm remote viewing it. Okay. It's a totally unknown target to me. Uh, the fact that it's been applied to Mount Hayes, I don't have any trouble with. The, the trouble I might have with it is what I the interpretation of what I might have said. Uh, is there some form of embedded base in that mound? Probably. Is it well known? Probably not. If you were to try to seek that out in that mound, would it be a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, he could go either way, depending on what you find. Uh, is it a specific kind of base? That's where I start getting into issues over what I say or don't say. Uh, I've been targeted on a lot of things, and this is part of the paper I gave it MUFON. When people target me on, like, a UFO, they're looking, what they're really looking for is a remote viewing or a remote viewer that tells them there's an alien on board this ship and they're from a, a godly star system or something. You're not going to get that from remote viewing. What you may get from remote viewing is, in this particular case, there's a, an entity on board. Is you don't know when, when you don't know. 
that says much. But <laughs> well, there's what? some things you come up with that you interpret badly that you're wrong about in remote viewing. Well, it doesn't sound like you're the only one that remote viewed uh, Mount Hayes. No, there's some others too. And it may be that I'm just confirming their viewing. I, I don't know. It depends on how it was presented to me at the time. Um, Do you remember anything about a small nuclear power plant? Yeah, I do, in fact. That's like a 55-gallon drum buried in the ground. Maybe 160 feet down. They just take a tube, drop it in the bottom of the tube with two feeder cables coming out, and it produces power for 25,000 years or something. goes inert, and it's buried in the ground 160 feet. Uh, in fact, I, I do know I remote viewed one of those once, more than once actually, so that may be one of the ones where I did, and I said, we need, we need these things for housing developments in the middle of nowhere, that, that would be a great power system for them, wouldn't need any other infrastructure. It sounded like... You had also said something along the lines of a, on top of a dome, there was an emitter sending large amounts of energy into space. I can't, I can't answer that. I don't remember. Do you remember anything about Mount Zeal? No, nothing at all about that. <laughs> Mount Perdido. Perdido, that's in Spain? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, I remember saying that uh, Mount Perdido has a lot hidden in it because it's a mount where there's lots of, um, you know what a whiteout on a mountain is? I do. When you're on top of the mountain and the clouds come in and if you take one more step, you don't know if it's going to be a short one or a long Mount Perdido is one of those mountains. If you're ever on that mountain, it's like best uh, be careful because you can get whited out up there at a heartbeat. So there are some things that I think that are hidden about that mountain. Uh, I might have talked about that. I, you know, I honestly, I can't remember this stuff now. It depends on who did the analysis and who put this together. Okay. And, and, and I'm, I'm trying to be fair here because I, I honestly don't remember what I said about some of these places. And uh, I find it dangerous to consolidate stuff mm -hmm. from multiple viewers because some of the viewers might not have is qualified. I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I, Do you remember anything about, I'm going to butcher this name, Mount Nyangani? Uh, it's in Africa, right? I believe so. Yeah. Uh, uh, only 
that it's part of the Zulu Nation. There's a tribe there that guards it. Guards that mountain. Doesn't like people going up or down the mountain. Uh, see, one of the problems here since we've tweaked the radars on some of the Navy planes. Capturing the tic tacs. Tic tacs actually go all the way back to Trinity when they set the bomb off at Trinity in the desert. That's when the first tic tac showed up, and that was a crash. Uh, it was 12 miles away from Trinity, but it was right after the bomb went off at Trinity to test.
it was like uh, hair, hair-like stuff came out of the wall, and it tingled when you held it in your hands. And if you took it out at night, it would glow in the dark. And it did so. It glowed in the dark for like 25 years. Because some of these kids that stole parts of this stuff were putting it on their Christmas trees for 25 years because it glowed in the dark. So that's not human manufacture. That's manufactured by somebody else. So it stands to reason that if Tic Tacs are being manufactured somewhere, it's probably on this planet because they're not able to travel into the vacuum of space. They're only able to travel high speeds on this planet. It may be that the people who manufacture the Tic Tacs live in certain areas on our planet that are unknown to us because that's what they've done for thousands of years. It's our rival that changed everything. So, what if these are the actual inhabitants of Earth from the very beginning, and we're not? We're the aliens, <laughs> and we've come in and taken over the world, and now all they have to deal with us over is how to convince us that they are something that we're afraid of. Not in reality are they capable of doing anything to anybody. They're they're harmless. But they were able to avoid us for a long time with their tic tacs because of the speed, their ability to change direction in a ninety degree turn at high speeds and their their ability to go from air to water without making a splash all that stuff and so we're now predisposed to think that maybe these aliens or whatever they are have bases on our planet somewhere and I think well, they I... May. these may be the very bases that we're talking about I think if they do then they're native to this planet we're ultimately the the invader. We're the ones who came in and just started taking things and <laughs> colonize that. Taking it. Oh yeah, taking it. <laughs> you know, it never stopped. <laughs> it, it's a hard call to make, and and so colonizer mentality. Some of my suggestions, I'm pretty sure have been slow down, use my remote viewing carefully, because you need to interpret it only as far as what it says, not implies. And, and I think a lot of people take my remote viewing and use it as it's implied, not as its actual limit of what it says. And, and that's an aggravation for me. Because it, it's an irritant, actually. It kind of makes me angry. When they leave... Are they listening to Psychic Spy?
CIA project, CIA's project Stargate. That's on Ryan's show. He's in the aisle. Talking about his custody agent that stole two million dollars and disappeared. And everything when she gives me permission to do that. Thank you. Uh, she's she's really good. I I bring her in on my remote viewing training Brain. that I do at the Monterey <laughs> Institute. I bring her in for one night to answer questions. Bring her in. <laughs> and she has fun with those. Let me tell you. <laughs> she. I'll tell you something. She did. First, like the first week in the lab, they had a uh, a U.S. Customs agent hmm. who took two million dollars. It was supposedly earmarked for something. He just stole it and disappeared. So the FBI was really after this guy, and he was on a most wanted list and all that sort of thing. But they. It was dead a winter when this happened. And so they were absolutely positive since he loved the Bahamas. He's in the islands. He went down there. He probably bought a boat. <laughs> he's living in the islands. She comes up with the fact he's in, I don't know, West Muldoon, Iowa or something. I can't remember now. It was Wyoming or something like that. So she says, no, 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 no. He's way out in Wyoming or something. Nobody believes her. Everybody, every psychic in the unit is talking about the Bahamas, Bimini, Nassau, you know, all these places. Because they're picking up on all this stuff. And she's saying, no, no. He's up north. Where all the parks are closed because the snow falls six feet deep. No, 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 no. He hates the cold. He'd never go there. Not with $2 million in his pocket. So, huge argument entail. And so, Defense Intelligence Agency is nervous about all the psychics saying Bahamas, and she's saying he's Punk, Iowa, or something. Wyoming. So she gets more specific. They go back to her and say, why do you say that? Well, he's staying in a place that's right behind a, a Native American burial ground. It's right next to a national park. There's like six feet of snow on the ground, and he's the only guy in this motel. <laughs> Nobody believes him. But just in case, the FBI sends a wanted poster out to all the park places in the extreme northwest that's buried under snow. Park ranger remembers having breakfast with him, the only two people in the entire freaking world eating breakfast together in this drive-up diner. on his machine. As soon as he gets to work, he turns around, he goes back with a state trooper and they arrest the guy. No way. Yeah. In Podunk, Iowa, or Wyoming, or wherever the hell it was. And they arrest him 
in this motel, behind which is an Indian burial ground, <laughs> and it's adjacent to a park. I think she was even more specific about what kind of park. <laughs> and it's like she gets no credit at all for it until they're talking about it. The great job the FBI did on the news one night. And somebody calls in from the Park Service. <laughs> That's not how it happened. <laughs> That's not how it happened. They sent us a, a wanted poster on him. Our guy from the Park Service actually had breakfast with him and got a state trooper, and they arrested him and turned him over to the FBI. The FBI had no idea he was here. <laughs> and the only reason the Park Service sent out the all-wanted, all-points-wanted bulletin was because she said so. Wow. <laughs> that all came home to roost. Hmm. And so she drive up the diner or something Wyoming so she gets more specific they go back to her and say why do you say that well he's staying in a place that's right behind a uh, Native American burial ground it's right next to a national park there's like six feet of snow on the ground and he's the only guy in this motel Let's check the weather report <laughs> Nobody believes it. But, just in case, the FBI sends a wanted poster out to all the park places in the extreme northwest that's buried under snow. Park ranger remembers having breakfast with him. The only two people in the entire freaking world eating breakfast together in this drive-up diner in Wyoming or wherever it was. So he gets the, the facts on his machine. As soon as he gets to work, he turns around, he goes back with a state trooper, and they arrest the guy. <laughs> no way. Yeah. In Podunk, Iowa, or Wyoming, or wherever the hell it was. And they arrest him in this motel behind which is an Indian burial ground, <laughs> and it's adjacent to a park. I think she was even more specific about what kind of park. <laughs> and it's like she gets no credit at all for it until they're talking about it. The great job the FBI did on the news one night. And somebody calls in from the Park Service. <laughs> That's not how it happened. That's not how it happened. <laughs> they sent us a, a wanted poster on him. Our guy from the Park Service actually had breakfast with him and got a state trooper and they arrested him and turned him over to the FBI. The FBI had no idea he was here. <laughs> <laughs> and the only reason the Park Service sent out the all-wanted, all-points-wanted bulletin was because she said so. Wow. <laughs> that all came home to roost. 
And so she walked around like the queen bee for about a week. Good for her. <laughs> yeah, good, good for, for her. her. But you gotta, if you talk to her, you gotta talk to her about the missing guy with the bunny. I will. She just <laughs> kept stating over and over. And she gets all this by automatic writing. <laughs> wow. Absolutely brilliant young lady. <laughs> I would love to have a conversation with her as well. Yeah, um, you enjoy it. She had a, an identical twin sister, and they were both as good as, almost as good as the other. Her sister's not dead. And you she, had a twin. No, she did too. Identical twin. I didn't have an identical twin. I had a female twin. And uh, But her sister was as psychic as she was, but her sister's dead now. And she's retired now, but uh, and and they treated her like crap. And I mean, she was one of the top analysts, man, in the Pentagon. And she wanted to come into that unit. She, I mean, she volunteered to come into that unit because she knew she had something to offer, and she did, and she still does. And we still use her in the labs. She's that she's that good. I mean, she's really a good. Uh, person well thank you for sharing that yeah well joe we're wrapping up the interview <laughs> and i have one more viewing and i <laughs> i want to say that i'm very reluctant to ask this question okay <laughs> go ahead and ask anyway i couldn't leave here without answering <laughs> today's your 78th birthday yeah <laughs> In all its majesty. <laughs> it, it, it is my understanding that you may have remote viewed your own death. And that it happens at age 78. I don't know about that. 78. I did, I did have an incident when I went to Vietnam. Where I, I thought I saw my imminent death. And it turned out to be a huge assumption on my part. It happened exactly as I saw it, but it was an assumption. Okay. So, what I think might be misconstrued here is I had a, um, I had a problem with uh, an infection from one of my hospital surgeries. And you had people get sick from the hospital. I, I went up to New York. I, I, this was when I was 72. I went up to New York because I got my degree. I graduated with this big crowd of young kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was right after I had a back surgery. And, in my spinal surgery, they had uh, a, a lot of staples down in my back, and one was inverted. It was backwards, and they couldn't get it out. And I think somebody was back there messing with it, trying to get it out. And I said, I hope you're wearing gloves so you scrub your hands real good. And she got them walked out, and they were sorry again. <laughs> we still need something. But anyway... <laughs> The doctor came out with a pair of gloves on and just took their pliers and jerked it out. 
So we went ahead up to New York, and I graduated. The next morning when I woke up, I had a really bad infection showing on the sheet in the hotel. So my uh, lovely wife drove me straight back to University of Virginia Hospital. And I went in the emergency room. And they, they couldn't find an open OR. in the emergency room a long time, uh, many, many, many hours, and I was getting weaker and weaker. My body was just racked with this infection. Turned out it was a uh, Staphylococcus aureus or something like that. Anyway, Staph it, it, infection. Was just, it was a terrible infection. I was running out of energy, so they wanted me to do an MRI. And, uh, well, just before the MRI, I was getting weaker and weaker. And I said, uh, in my mind, I felt like I was standing on a bed of tiles and they were falling away one at a time. And I viewed that as my energy going out. And I got to a point where only my feet were standing on tiles. And I came to the conclusion that it would just be so easy to step across and not be there anymore. And so I was contemplating this because I was, I was done. And this, I felt this hand grab my arm. It was my wife. And she whispered at me. She said, don't you dare leave me. <laughs> so I started stealing energy from as many places and people as I could. So they put me in an MRI, and halfway through the MRI, I started hallucinating. So I said, got to get me out of here. And the doctor chided me. He said, I thought you were a tough old army guy. You could deal with an MRI. And I said, I can normally, but I'm hallucinating. So I know my temperature is about as high as it's going to go. And he said, nevertheless, you should have finished your MRI. So when I came out of the MRI, the nurse came over and rubbed one of those temperature things on my head. And she turned to the doc. She said, he's not wrong. It's 107. They found him in the OR room immediately and reopened everything that they had done on my spine and washed it all out with antibiotics and pumped antibiotics into me for months and finally killed all that stuff. That's probably the closest I've come. Um, Vietnam, when I got off the plane, when I arrived in Vietnam, and I stepped off the C-130, you know, I come off that back ramp. When my foot hit the ground, I saw myself dying in a flash of white light. I knew that's it. That's where I'm going to go. An itinerant rocket attack or a mortar, big heavy mortar, or maybe a artillery round or something was going to get me. And I turned around and I told the guy behind me, and they just opened up a space behind me. Nobody wanted to be close to me after I told them that. 
So I go through a whole time in Vietnam and nothing happens. Well, I had a few close ones, but, you know, rattled me a little bit. But I didn't die of a, I turn it around. So I get ready to leave Vietnam. And I had also had a vision that I'd be leaving on a bright yellow plane called the Canary Plane or something. I said, that's not possible. <laughs> so I get to the airport and I'm leaving Vietnam and it says, uh, oh, you're flying on one of those new Brainerd planes. They, you know, they're pastel colors and yours is a canary yellow. It's called, uh, Jake Bird or something. <laughs> so I flew out on a canary yellow plane. So that came true too. But the explosion didn't. I couldn't figure that out until I had my near-death experience in Austria when I was enveloped in a white light. I went, mm -hmm. here it is. I'm in it. <laughs> I, was, I was like, yeah, I saw it coming in Vietnam. I misinterpreted it. Okay. Okay. Um, the only thing I might have said that would have brought that out of someone would be at some of my talks when people say, well, how long do you plan on doing this? Or how long do you plan on being here? Or whatever, that sort of thing. Sometimes my comment is, who knows? I could go going home. I get nailed by somebody going home. Or I could just drop dead right in front of you. <laughs> and and it, they all get a laugh out of that, but they're not sure if I'm telling the truth or not. And it doesn't matter. None of that matters. The, the fact of the matter is I've come so close to death so many times that I've reached a point where my understanding is I'm still here simply because I'm not through doing whatever I'm doing. So that may be interpreted as when I'm saying I'm quitting the remote viewing work as, well, now he's done. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I'm not doing remote viewing anymore. I'll, I'll teach remote viewing at the Monroe Institute as long as they'll have me. Or I give talks there anytime they want to. Or I do webinars for them. Anything that supports that place I'll do until they're throwing dirt on my face in the ground. Because that's how I feel about it. And a lot of that may be misinterpreted by some who think, oh my God, he's going to die on us. No, usually what I tell them is if I drop dead in the next two minutes, it's not important. Mm -hmm. What's important is that I that happens while I'm doing something I like to do. Then it's okay. If I was doing something I hated with a passion and it happened, oh, God, what a waste that would have been. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. I, I, I don't worry about that stuff anymore. When you're 78, don't give a shit. It's okay. <laughs> I'm, I just want to enjoy what I do. Yeah. I just, uh, 
somebody had told me that, and um, we have rescheduled. And uh, when I found out that the rescheduled date was on your 78th birthday, you thought <laughs> I was like, whoa, well, yeah, whoa, what if he like just goes to sleep in the chair? Is this a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy? But well, uh, that would be something cool to catch. Wouldn't it? I, mean, <laughs> I would rather that not happen. Joe. But um, do you do you fear death at all? No, I have absolutely no fear of death. I never have actually uh, since my near death experience. What do you think happens? What I, what I think happens, uh, it's like I have no absolute belief in heaven or hell. I think we just progress into a new form of what we are. And I think the real surprise, heaven, what heaven and hell is, I've given a lot of thought to this. If when you're dead, you find out that all the people you lived and interacted with are all part of you, the reason that would be a good thing is because if we, if we as entities learn by experience, there's no way knowing if the experience is valid or not if all we're getting is our perception of it. The only way you can know if experience was valid and had something beneficial generated by it would be if we were not only the person in the experience, but all persons in the experience. In other words, we would have to have every perspective of all the people we care about that we're part of in that experience. So, in death, I would welcome the fact of knowing that all the people I was heavily engaged with my entire life were all, were all just extensions of me. That's the only way of getting every perspective of every action you've ever taken, would be to have the perceptions of all those you care most for, or you care about, or you're part of, or your family with, or you worked with, or all of that. And I think that's true. I think that's what we find out. That's the big surprise at death. Everything we experience has been perceived, and we get all of those ex ex perceived exper experiences from everybody that we've ever been part of. So our in a holistic sense, we're not just us. We're all the people we've lived, lived with and cared about. So I cannot imagine a worse hell than to treat people like shit your whole life and to find out all the damage you did and not be able to rectify that. To feel their pain everything, all the pain and all the bad experience and all the, the frustration and upset that you've given, the sickness that you've delivered to them, not be able to fix it and know that it was just the major part of you. I think that's hell on whatever. And, and not so much 
each other. I think Kevin is knowing that you did everything you possibly could to, to soften the impact of life on the people you care about. And the people that are important to you in your entire lifetime. So people have a way of making up for their failures by realizing that and understanding that it's not just them. It's everybody they're in contact with. When they, when they do something to themselves to denigrate themselves, they're doing it to all the people who care about them. They're all part of the same. You're all part of the same person, the same entity. One ecosystem. Yeah. It's a learning system. And I think it's the only way to really learn is to know all the perceptions that people who cared about you have when you did A or B or C. The only way to learn from it is to know what was wrong about it, what was right about it, how it affected people that were observing it. I, I think that's true learning. And that may, that may be a design... I don't think it's a flaw. I think it's a design in the reality of which we are all part of something larger. And you can call it God or whatever you want, but it's something much larger. And it, and it deals with all possibilities. I mean, there's lots of people that exist I say people, there's lots of entities that exist across the cosmos. What if all that's true? We think very little of ourselves if we act the way we are versus being better at it or greater at it or, uh, I don't know, pay attention. But some deep thought. Yeah. That's the first time I've ever heard that, and that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Well, it makes sense to me. Thank you. Anyway. Well, I mean, just that uh, that segment alone is motivation for people to do the right thing. The one would hope so. There are still those that think that's better. More power is better, and why do I want to get involved in that foolishness? Well, they'll find out. I think that's hell. Hell that they. That's what it is later. Wow. Well, Joe, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for coming. What a on fucking marathon interview, man! That you've shared and um, is the Monroe. I missed their very last. Uh... I don't know. Something much larger, and it and it deals with may that may be a design, and I think it's the only way to really learn is to know all the perceptions that people who cared about you have when you did A or B or C. The only way to learn from it is to know what was wrong about it, what was right about it, 
how it affected people that were observing it. I, I think that's true learning. And that may, that may be a design. I don't think it's a flaw. I think it's a design in the reality of which we all part of something larger. And you can call it God or whatever you want, but it's something much larger. And it, and it deals with all possibilities. I mean, there's lots of people that exist. I say people. There's lots of entities that exist across the cosmos. What if all that's true? We think very little of ourselves if we act the way we are versus being better at it or greater at it or, uh, I don't know, pay attention. That's some deep thought. Yeah. That's the first time I've ever heard that, and that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Well, it makes sense to me. Thank you. Anyway, well, I mean, just that uh, that segment alone is motivation for people to do the right thing. Okay, let's go to the Sean, Sean Ryan show and see what else we've got. SRS clips, diaper on indictments, a payoff to a porn star mix. No, something. Um, men's near death experience was trapped underwater. Blah blah blah. Psychedelics such as PTSD, paranormal phenomenon. Next thing you know. So this is like ancient. Hmm. Oh, here we go. Here's something groovy. Ancient Egypt and Antarctica secrets. We are all in danger. You're gonna have it to is evil itself. Self. Asking questions that might make you a little bit uncomfortable. That's something that Admiral Bird, <laughs> Admiral Bird said. The thing about knowledge is it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. You see? Knowledge is just knowledge. frozen, windswept Arctic afternoon when I was bundled up into a jeep and hustled out on a special top secret mission. I figured I was finally going to be let into the reason for the existence of this high security Arctic base. Say he's uh, Che Guevara's. Buzz Aldrin went down there to Antarctica and he made or a tweet. Fidel Castro's love child. Thousands of people, thankfully, before it got deleted the next day, he said that the people down here that we're meeting were facing the ultimate evil or something to that effect. And there's an entire advanced civilization there, including some of the largest pyramids on Earth, right in Antarctica. We drove slowly through and past ah. the buildings. All of them very gray, windy. 
and we're meeting and we're facing the ultimate evil or something to that effect. And there's an entire advanced civilization there, including some of the largest pyramids on Earth, right in Antarctica. We drove slowly through and past the buildings, all of them very gray, windy. And we rounded a corner and came upon a red one. We stopped. I got out of the jeep and started to crunch across towards the front door. I was told no to the window. Why do you think Admiral Byrd and the Rockefellers were so much more interested in Antarctica, the South Pole, rather than the North Pole? There is a situation that began to happen during World War II where they discovered that the Nazis had went down to Antarctica and built the base down there, New Schwabenland. It is beginning to look a lot like Christmas in Rockefeller Plaza. leaders were there at the same time they went to go meet with who and Buzz Aldrin was invited a space traveling or astronaut goes down there to meet with who he said the ultimate evil pyramids down there are a lot they're a lot bigger than the oh, ones in the super megalogic one of the pyramids is two kilometers by two kilometers by two kilometers by two kilometers of oh, base wow looking into the Nikola Tesla stuff, and it sounds like Nikola Tesla got his information somehow from ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. A lot yes. of people say that the pyramids were some type, of a, some type of a power plant. You look at Bosnia in Europe, there's a pyramid there called the Pyramid of the Sun, just like the one, there's, there's one in Mexico called the Pyramid of the Sun, there's one in Bosnia called the Pyramid of the Sun. It's massive. There's tunnels underneath that are connecting the pyramids, but inside of this one tunnel, they found this gigantic crystal. It's called a K2 megalith. And on it is written in runes, it says, we must stand in defense until we can open the gate. So CERN, in my opinion, is researching and learning about technologies that already existed. Again, we're just rediscovering everything. When you go to CERN, right outside the front door is this gigantic uh, picture of uh, this Indian god that is standing inside of a portal. I mean, what do you think they're doing with these mini black holes that you think that they're creating? Yeah. People were trying to stop them from doing it, but they just kept working anyway. <laughs> they didn't care. They are just, in my opinion, learning about these creation of portals, learning how to create stable wormholes, just all experimenting, just trying to figure out how do we, what type of energy can we inject into one of these holes that will stabilize it, maybe even expand it? Where do they lead? Where do they go? Like when we go through them, where will we end up? <laughs> Please let me use the CERN Large Hadron Collider. I'm a normal and can be trusted with a demonic technology unlike the world has ever known. This type of research without complete oversight, to me, is scary stuff, man. I mean, too. you don't even know what can come through. Like, I do believe in life in other worlds and also life in even other dimensions. 
We know that based on theoretical physicists like Michio Kaku and many other well-respected physicists that we're living in a universe based on 11 dimensions. Dimension is the realm that exists at a different frequency. So right now we're in the third dimension. We only can control the first and the second. The, the benefit of knowing this, imagine teaching your kids that everything that exists is conscious. A rock, a blade of grass, your clothing, even your book bag is aware. It's conscious. Imagine teaching them how to respect conscious things, the level of respect they will have for their personal items. Understanding and knowing that everything that they interact with, everything they touch or see, has a level of conscious imbued into it. Treat everything that exists, no matter whether we think man-made it or it's natural, with respect and dignity. There's this obsession with space. Yep. And Elon says, I believe he wants to occupy Mars by, is it 2025? Yeah. And what, why is the fascination in space? Has all of Earth been discovered? I mean, uh, what's... No. Just buying concealed carry insurance isn't enough to be prepared. You need to be educated and trained. And that's exactly why the U.S. Concealed Carry Association was founded. Hi, I'm Mike Bauer, Regional Manager for the U.S. Concealed Carry Association. And I'd love to explain why you as a responsible gun owner need membership. And how you can get this free survival kit today. With just a few clicks, USCCA members get life-saving self-defense education, training, plus self-defense liability insurance. We're the industry leader in providing educational and training resources for everyone from brand new gun owners to seasoned veterans. And our legal resources, like attorney webinars, pro 2 attorney network, plus self-defense liability insurance all members get, means you'll never have to walk through the aftermath of a self-defense situation on your own. And on top of that, we are constantly giving away incredible bonuses and prizes because we believe protectors like you should be rewarded and prepared. Right now, when you join the USCCA at the Platinum or Elite Self Level, you'll automatically get a brand new survival like kit valued at $155 for free. Now inside, help. there are 11 handpicked so items to help about? you get out of trouble and to safety. So you can kill but a you can... Mexican? Probably what it means. Oh, man. Hidden truth, ancient civilizations, multiple dimensions, aliens, and time. Sounds pretty good. What we tend to not understand is that time really doesn't exist. Clocks exist. Mm. Time doesn't exist. Right. And like you said, we've been given this functional arrow of time, which puts us in one specific direction, so that we can organize our thoughts and our days and our years and weeks and what we're going to do and what we're going to meet up with somebody and everything else. So we have this ability to coordinate and collaborate with each other like how we're here today at this specific time. Mm -hmm. However, if you understand that time is also an illusion, it's something that you can use as a tool, mm -hmm. but if you also understand that it's an illusion, then you can actually master time and you can, you can maximize what you're doing on this planet. I'm 19 kilos. Thank you.
family. Welcome back to another high-level conversation. Today we have a powerful presentation, a very powerful energy, spirit, man, guide, scholar, polymath, intellectual, executive, actor, producer, author, you understand me, TV host, academia, um, a man really whom those who have seen needs no introduction, you understand me, a very extraterrestrial intellect, you understand me, a person that can dive in multi-dimensional areas, you understand me, and um, a person that... This guy constantly says you understand me. Have you, you understand me, this is a man who has, you know, secured funding again, to build underground cities in Georgia. You understand me? A person who is a two-time best-selling author. You understand me? Arthur. Woke doesn't mean broke. And of the Emerald Tablets. And also the founder of Forbidden Knowledge. Compendium. You may have seen him on the Travel Channel. Emerald Tablets. You may have seen him on the History Channel. You understand me? You may have seen him (laughs) in another dimension when you just happened to be popping some shrooms or something and traveling (laughs) through somewhere. Billy Carson was right there floating next to you, giving you (laughs) some guide. You understand me? This is a powerful brother. Not only has he found things here on Earth, but he's actually found things out in space. You understand me? And we're going to dive I do into exactly you, what that means. So you today, me. I want to introduce you to none other than the most powerful, prolific brother known as Mr. Billy Carson. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate Welcome. you having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for the great introduction. Absolutely, man. Uh, yeah. You, you know, I make sure I have very... Um, intelligent people, you understand me, um, who require introduction, you understand me. I do. For those, of course, like I said, who know you, you don't require any introduction, you understand me, you are a man, a a great platform, you understand me, that that stands on his own merit based on the knowledge that you possess, research, investigate, and deliver to the masses. Thanks, man. Uh, Today, man, I want to have a roundabout conversation about multitude of different subjects here at High Level Conversations. I like to have an actual cipher, you understand me, where we build and we collide and create new universes, you understand me, a university of thoughts. And um, first thing I wanted to talk about He says you understand me every 30 seconds. You know, um, and the ideas of time. There's a, a lot of people that's trapped into increments of time that they have to work in, you understand me, from a 95 position, and they have to live within windows of hours and dissect their days based on that. Yeah. You understand me? And the unfortunate reality of it is is that most people will never have a true understanding of life because they're living on borrowed time. You understand, you understand me? me? And so I'm always working to help present um, perspective and observation on where people can understand the laws of time a little more. You understand me? Especially as we enter into fourth and fifth dimensional phases here, you understand me, on this planet Earth. You understand me? Or the universe, as we will. You know, human beings, you know, uh, are we very interested, you know, beings. Yeah. You understand me? Like, just the idea that we allow someone else to decide what time is for us is a very interesting thing. You understand me? Julius Caesar to the Roman Pope with his papal bulls deciding you know, what is a 365 calendar? You what me? is uh, uh, talking about uh, seven day weeks and uh, 60 seconds and 60 minutes? And you understand me? We say, okay, let's yeah. go along with it. Yeah. You, you understand know? me? And, and we don't realize that it speeds up, you understand me, the yeah. process from being born to when you leave this place. Yeah. You understand you know, me? 
Um, and then we already have expectations on what life is going to be because there's other people that tell us what it is, when we're going to die, when we get old, when we're going to feel a certain way. Yes, so Jimmy. it sets up a curation for us to die a certain way and at a certain yes, speed. Jimmy. Can for I want to hear what your interpretation of what time yes. is first. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a this is a, a very deep, deep question. I've talked about mm -hmm. this so many times in in different um, so many times uh, lectures and <laughs> workshops. You yes, know, Jimmy. because for people in the third dimension, we're in the third dimension. What we tend to not understand is that time really doesn't exist. Clocks exist. Mm. Time doesn't exist. Right. And like you said, we've been given this functional arrow of time, which puts us in one specific direction yes, so Jimmy. that we can organize our thoughts and our days and our years and weeks and what we're going to do and what we're going to meet up with somebody and everything else. So we have this ability to coordinate and collaborate with each other like how we're here today at this specific yes, time. Yes, Jimmy. Mm -hmm. However, if you understand that time is also an illusion, it's something that you can use as a tool, mm -hmm. but if you also understand that it's an illusion, then you can actually master time, and you can you can maximize what you're doing on this planet. Because Understand if you me? go any high, in, in all the higher dimensions, you know, we're in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, so all the way up. For the layman that don't understand mm -hmm. what being in the third dimension is, means, can you give us you a breakdown? Me? Okay, sure. So if you draw a line on a piece of paper, mm -hmm. that's the first dimension. You if me? you then connect those lines and, and uh, create a house on a piece of paper, that's a two-dimensional structure, or you can move it into a computer. Anything you see in a computer that looks 3D is actually 2D. Right? Mm. So, and because we're in the third, we can see down into 2D. We can see all the way down, obviously, into 1D, and we can manipulate those dimensions from our higher selves. Now, if you, if now there are beings in fourth, fifth, and sixth dimensions, just be people above us. Now, because of that, they see us. And they recognize the past, present, and future operating all at the same time. Everything's happening at once. Right. There is no separation between the past, present, and the future. The arrow doesn't exist. Because they're higher than us, they can look down into the third, and they can see into what we're doing. So so who are hopeful for? We got to unpack a little bit. We got to unpack. Okay. It's high level, but I want to make sure that the people can follow along with it. So, you know, talking about third dimension, right? You know, it's a uh, ants are not third dimensional things, right? Because mm -hmm. they can't see upward, right? They're not uh, horizontal. Yes, you understand Jimmy. me? Uh, they exist on the plane where they're looking forward, right? So when you're moving about the rest of the world that is higher up to them, they have no access to that, no perspective on that whatsoever. You understand, you understand me? me? For them, everything is straight and in front of them. For human beings, we have the ability to look upward, to look inward, to look outward, to look around. Right, so therefore, we're connected into different angles, different perspectives, and you different dimensions. Me? You, understand, you me? understand me? And then, what I wanted to get though, with next though, so let's say we got the third dimension, right? Now, talking about the fourth dimension, right? What is the fourth third dimension? Fucking driving the me fourth nuts. dimension is something called a tesseract. Mm -hmm. And if you go into the ancient text, it's Metatron's cube. Meta, M E T A. Meta. Mm -hmm. Obviously, yeah, you know, meta verse, right? They got that from Metatron's cube. Uh, it's a fourth-dimensional substructure. Now, this fourth dimension is really something called a quasi-crystal. And this quasi-crystal in the fourth dimension, it casts a shadow. And the shadow that it casts, it creates the realm that we're living in here. We're living in a shadow of a higher dimension. That shadow creates a third dimension. You understand it me? actually creates a fractal of it, creates this fractal holographic matrix that we're actually maneuvering in 
in the third dimension right now. So would the, the fourth dimension be considered a dimension of time? But now knowing quantum physics that there is actually a fourth dimension. So all dimensions are in 90 degree angles of each other. And according me? to uh, quantum theory right now, we're really anticipating that there's at least 11 dimensions or otherwise the universe would collapse. So there really is truly a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, all the way up. Not just the arrow of time. That's just something extra. Mm -hmm. They try to make it make sense back then by saying the fourth dimension is time. But time is actually not a dimension at all. Mm. So now that's, that's a very time. interesting thing. Because there's a lot that I'm sure that everybody's like, oh, like I thought I was smart. <laughs> and then I tried to keep up. And then I got left behind. Right. You understand me? I and do understand what I want, you, And I want man. to bring people up to speed. You understand me? Um, and the I idea is in correlation you. to the analogy of how we're moving as a collective human species, specifically with technology, right? You understand me? Because I think it can be um, connected to, you know, uh, cellular uh, technology, uh, right? Uh, Going from 3G to 4G. To the sea. <clears throat> and... You know, going from 3G to 4G to 5G, which allows us to be able to do different things that we normally weren't able to do that weren't possible, yeah. right? You know, Till let's say you got 3G phones, it's, it's hell, you make better, faster calls, you understand me, connected. Then you get to 4G and you're talking about now applications and streaming, right? And Wi-Fi, right? Being able to connect within systems and the internet of things and then... 5G allowing completely new Till systems with possibility. And this is where I think a lot of people missed the point in 2020 when everybody was going through the craze of where the 5G was killing somebody. So what was 5G going to do? Understand me. You said something about I don't understand me. Yeah. Right? Now, 
we always look at ourselves as uh, uh, people, but then when we cuneiform tablet as a mm -hmm. pen. You guys, my girlfriends have been freaking out over this. I saw a urologist talk about this on the news, and men. Thing about knowledge is, it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. You see, knowledge. Understand what I mean? Pyramids down there me? are wormholes. Just like all experimenting, just trying to build into it, treat everything that exists, no matter whether we think man-made it or it's natural, with respect and dignity. There's this obsession with space. And Elon says, I believe he wants to occupy Mars by 2025. Yeah. And what? Okay, John, Sean, Sean Ryan Show. Trailers, Sean Ryan Clipped. 1.9K videos. Got almost. Two million subscribers, that's awesome. Jonathan Wilson. Pay after a corn star. Don't ask any questions. Don't worry Six that it's a lie. Ago. It's game time for this election. Joe Biden is a, you know, a, a, a clown who on his best days uh, isn't, it's an insult to the notion of the presidency that this guy would be in charge of anything. Um, Joe Biden might lose this election. It was very close. People sometimes, I think, forget that when you actually look at where it mattered with the states, uh, not even getting into all the discussion about what was done where and the way things were rigged and all the rest of it. Um, but they knew their job was to use the credibility that they had to have led people at these institutions, um, at these agencies, agencies where, as you know, people have given their lives for their country. They've given time with their kids. They've given marriages. They've given everything to try to serve the mission. And they decided to use the credibility from the very top Where's level, not dude? some little nobody from back in the day like me, somebody who was really senior in the process, the most senior people. They used the credibility of those agencies and what was sacrificed by people who did real work and put themselves on the line um, in order to propagate a lie to throw an election. That is third world banana republic bullshit. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows it. And, and I think that we, have, we enter this scary time because when you have a regime that does not feel bound by, never mind traditions and conventions, but law that we're all supposed to agree on, which I do not think you have um, with the Democrat left, and I have criticisms of Republicans too, and we can get into some of that, um, but when you have a regime that does not feel bound by tradition and law, and you have an intelligence service or an intelligence apparatus that feels its primary mission is to the regime and not to the people and not to the Constitution, really bad things can happen. And I do believe that is where we are. Folks, just want to take a I moment just want to, to ask for your support today. Not a single oh, no. donation goes unnoticed. Not a single donation goes unnoticed. I know with everything going on no, in your life, no, no, it's easy no, to make no, your own no, path. But think back to where we were a few years ago. Well, Look we're around this country now. now.
That's you. Know, that's, that's your impact. That's your that you changed America for the better. changed America. Mark it for the better. You mean the world to me if you chipped you in. You mean the world to me if you give me Thank a you. dollar. Don't you have a fucking dollar, Biden? Grandpa Brandon? Since not it's everyone is a total money. stoner like my husband, Guilty. Mood takes the Instead guesswork out of cannabis. Begging, so, you know us, exactly begging us for money really is ridiculous. Ridiculous, you're and rich. I do believe that is where we are. I do too. I 100% pay, believe that. Pay it for yourself. I mean, That'd be so needy. Do you think there's any turning back? Oh God, I mean, I, I, I like to, I like to think that uh, there's always room for optimism and there's always hope that things can can start to move in a uh, in a better direction um here's joe biden here's needs my, five dollars so he can finish the, the job and then maybe you and i can old men want you to give him an, a dollar a so he can finish the job um, one of the biggest challenges we have is i think <laughs> as we get as things in this country become um more tyrannical and i do believe that's the appropriate word and you could say, oh, but what about Trump won? And then there's, and Republicans and this. The agenda and the change continues even when we win elections. Mm -hmm. This is what, I, because of the seizure, because of the control of so many of the choke points, platforms, um, levers of power within our society, politically and outside of the immediate realm of politics, the agenda continues and our notion of this as a country bound by the Constitution, where the individual is the paramount, the individual is the highest realm of of, uh, of freedom, rights, and the need to protect from the state, um, that is dwindling, I think, very, very rapidly. And I think that if you look at it on a broader spectrum, instead of just thinking, oh, well, you know, today is fine, yesterday was fine, maybe tomorrow will be great, too. They've already indicted a president, former president, who's a sitting, he is a, is this guy? a likely <laughs> next Republican candidate. They've indicted him on six days ago. The most absurd grounds imaginable. If if you gathered together a bunch of law school students, you get in a project, say, come up with the flimsiest felony prosecution of a politician or of a person you could. I think that this would win the prize, right? Uh, a payoff to a porn star that was supposed to be labeled as a campaign expense. It makes no sense. No one believes this makes any sense, but they did it. And I've been saying all along, well, why, why do they do it, right? People ask this question, why do they do it? They say, well, because they are building. They're building to bigger things against Trump and against the movement. Um, and I think you're going to see an indictment coming from Georgia in the summer. I think given the um, incitement, uh, well, the sedition, conspiracy to, you know, conspiracy to commit sedition or whatever the uh, official federal jargon may be, but they've got effectively sedition or treason charges on the books now against some of the January 6th guys. I think eventually they're going to hit Trump with a, um, with a sedition charge effectively call him a yeah. traitor and now for people who say they can't really want to do that because of what that would do to the country right i mean now 
how are we different from one of these households where, you know, you and your brothers in arms would have to show up back in the day and, like, try to stop everybody from just murdering each other in the streets? Like, how, how different is our political system really?